All right, Chema, so we talked about uh, motifs and things that run throughout uh, and style points that run throughout Lindelof's projects. How about, like, we take from each of the Offspring show main characters that have the strongest echoes of, like, the tentpole characters from Lost. And for this, everyone out there, like, again, Lost is an enormous cast. It's kind of hard to pinpoint the exact sort of tentpole or the exact main characters. But I think for this, uh, and I'm assuming you'll agree with me, we're talking about Jack, Kate, Sawyer, Locke, Hurley, Sun and Jin, Saeed, uh, Ben Linus, Desmond and Penny, I would say are main characters, correct? Exactly, yes. You could, you could slide are... Charlie in there, even though they couldn't really figure out what to do with him, but... You're right, and I like I don't even think he he didn't make it to all the way to the end, did nope. he? So I mean, he was he was around for the beginning, and he was like one, the flashback episode in episode two. But yeah, this is the core of the cast, and I'm sure everybody out there has got a different opinion on like who we can maybe replace and stuff like yep. this. But these are the people that have made it onto magazine covers. Like Hurley's on the cover of a Weezer album for crying out loud. Exactly. You could you could make arguments for Juliet. You could make arguments. You could make arguments for a lot of other characters, but yeah, dude, Juliet was a um, like a, an FHM, like a Maxim girl mm-hmm. and stuff, and like yeah. So I mean, there's everybody in the cast got their recognition in or magazine cover interview in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. And I've just side note: Elizabeth Mitchell is one of those like crushes I've had for literally like 25 years. Oh, I know exactly like, what you mean, dude. And the fact, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. she her ending up on V two, like right after yeah, Lost, like she'll yeah. um, she's one of those like she'll be in her seventies, and I'm still gonna be like, yeah, she's still hot, she's still got it, <laughs> like oh, it'll never fade. No, I definitely understand what you're saying, and like she's got like she just has like those facial features that like aren't going anywhere. Oh, exactly. She's very dist- she's very distinct looking for sure. For sure, I remember now that like they all her um. Maxim FHM thing is now just like crashing into my mind. I just I remember that <laughs> so 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 on the dot. Uh, of course, it's one and it, boy, what a what an of the time sort of like reference there. FHM, that's yeah, that's perfect. I think. We used to get a subscription, like somehow, like when doing magazine sales for like, like maybe CSU, I bought something as like a fundraiser, mm-hmm. but we had magazine subscriptions to like five different magazines for like the longest time. That's, that sounds about right. I think, I think our frat house got FHM and oh, it was, yeah. those every, were just streamed every fucking everywhere. <laughs> I think, I think as you yeah, join, every, you get a membership uh, to every fraternity. Yeah. Every frat house came with a Maxim stuff, FHM, and um, the Maxim, Maxim of music one. I think it's just yeah, it's yeah, me. yeah. All right, but anyway, anyway, going back to uh, going back to the actual question again. Yeah, good because um, I could, we could get lost in that for hours. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the Offspring show. So, which of the main characters? So, from each of the shows, and I, like I said before, I'll fill in the fringe stuff since you're not like a, the the fringe expert and I am. But um, which of the main characters have the strongest echoes of the Temple characters in Lost? Um, so Chumbo, let's then, let's, how about we start with the leftovers? Okay. All right. No problem. So I would say, uh, Jack Shepard and Kevin Garvey are definitely the same, yeah. uh, people that is for, for fucking sure. Um, I think Kevin is not as intelligent of a character as Jack Shepard is, but at its core, that's what we're looking at here. You know, you're looking at like the guy, the man of faith, the man of logic, the dude who doesn't believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I had um, I also had John Locke as Matt Jameson. The religious connections and everything like that are there. Um, 
and for that reason, like that, that's basically my default. I would also sneak Kevin Garvey Sr. as a John Locke comparison. A little but bit. I, yeah, but I think that like in terms of like the debate between um, logic and faith or free will and destiny, I think that that is better exemplified between the contrast between Matt and Kevin. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 you're, you're absolutely oh. right. I would, I would say that Kevin Garvey Sr. is sort of like if John Locke jumped completely into faith that's mm-hmm. what kevin garvey senior would be yes yes very very good there oh yeah definitely but there's that certain there's that madness in the two of them that i think like um that that's where i was going, kind of going for is like the madness yeah. and the craziness mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. so i would sneak sneak him into that category too sure. okay so here's where my uh list gets a little bit interesting like i actually think kate and meg are the two biggest um kind of comparisons in the lost and the leftovers interesting mainly because they're both the escapists um kate is escaping her um her murder meg is escaping her pain and they both end up in these situations that, that kind of force them to deal with it in their own way. Now, they both go in extremely different paths. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> one takes over of the, a cult. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, but the core of their path is um, is the same for sure. So, I, okay. Yeah. I, oh, oh, just sorry, real quickly, ahead. I really love that comparison. I, I really didn't draw that one until you, like, you really mentioned it. And you're right, it is sort of literal, literal escaping from, you know, from a traumatic event and Mm -hmm. sort of more of the needing the emotional escape from the trauma. Definitely. Yeah. So that's where so I was taking the escape to um, to glue those two characters together. Then let's see here. Um, Ben Linus, the obvious one to me is Patty Levin, like just the leader Mm -hmm. of this like group of people and stuff. They both have um, their own kind of like tortured pasts and stuff. I do think Patty's is infinitely more um, more of a struggle than what Ben goes through. So um, I, those two characters, I think, are just basically like the mirror, and they're both like short redhead people too. So that kind of visually, there's <laughs> there, there's that connection too. Uh, let's see. So Sawyer was one that I kind of had to struggle with a little bit. Um, like I really couldn't find a comparable like leftovers comparison. There are elements of Kevin in Sawyer, especially when it comes to just like the man's man mm-hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. with, with him, you know. Like, if there was anybody that would be, like, a direct contrast to Kevin in more of a Sawyer-type way compared to Locke, it would probably be the um, the neighbor from season two, um, like, Angela Ava, like, uh, God, it's only drawing it's Reg- like yeah, her name. The, Reg- the actors, the Regina actors, King's husband. Regina King's husband. Uh, John. John. John, yes, played by yes. Kevin Carroll. Yeah. Yes, gotcha. Yeah, I would think that he might be in my mind, like the, the, the closest that I could pin to Sawyer, just in the way that he contrasts with Kevin is more mm-hmm. of like the manly man type way and stuff. Not necessarily the intellectual, like he's, debate about I mean, that stuff. uh, John in John in the leftovers is a criminal and does not almost kind of uses that as like a, as like a, as sort of like an intimidation point, even though he's yeah. not like, like in the same way that Sawyer uses his charisma swagger and the fact that he's a criminal is sort of mm-hmm. like to intimidate people. Yeah, that's a really good, yeah, definitely dude. Definitely. I didn't see that like that, but that's a really good point for sure. And uh, let's see. So my, my Desmond and Penny is the, the Kevin and Nora romance and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that these romances 
um, while completely different romances. And I do feel that um, if we're talking about rooting for romances, the Desmond and Penny romance is infinitely more root forable than the Kevin and Nora romance. But oh, yes. it is definitely a root forable romance. Just it's not as strong of a romance story. But the fact that um, this romance transcends some type of supernatural thing, whether it's a manipulation of time or an alternate reality, um, these are romances that are tested by things that go beyond like what we see in like the physical world mm-hmm. and stuff. So that is that would be my kind of connection for the Desmond I love and it. Penny one. I love it, and you know what? It's funny. Like the, I'll, I'll I'll give you like a little a bonus for Desmond and Penny. They there are definite shades of that with uh, Olivia and uh, Olivia Dunham and Peter Bishop in uh, in Fringe. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, there's an they did a Fringe did a really daring thing at the beginning of their third season when they essentially they wiped the character of Peter Bishop out of existence um, in the beginning of the the beginning of the season or the end of the second season beginning of the third season and okay. he was Josh Jackson was literally not in the first five episodes of the of the third season to the point where it was kind of like holy shit did they actually like is he off the show now and mm-hmm. it's literally the longing it's Olivia's longing for him and also Walter his, his father they he gets wiped out of existence and they don't know who he is like they don't they have no memory of him like he's just gone and really but they have this sort of like they t- they both talk about how like in at various points in times and like reflections they think they see someone um and they just have this sense of dread and longing that they can't explain and it's actually with the help of Chadwick Boseman in an episode uh the late great Chadwick Boseman in an episode um, that they sort of like, he's like a, he's a, a person that was experimented on, uh, in the past by Walter. Um, but it's with his help that they literally will Peter back to existence. Um, so like, that's a very, it's a different way, but a very Desmond and Penny esque sort of relationship. Yeah, that is, wow. That's actually like, it makes me now want to watch fringe and stuff like that. I'm because... telling you it's really good. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I was on the fringe train and for some reason I can't remember what, stopped me from further watching it and stuff whether it might have been a, a different night and maybe like i didn't have tivo anymore I, I can't remember what it was but like i was on board with it i watched the it, first um, season which i enjoyed it, changed, it very much it changed nights like three times it was it was like okay. a fox sunday night you know this is like our sunday night show and then it became right. a monday night show and then it moved to friday which has significantly lower like they're not expect when you move a show to friday you're not expecting big numbers for it Right, exactly. I I knew that that show made its like an essential, um, you know, uh, entering into the Friday time slot and everything. Like, but a lot like the X Files ended up on that time slot and stuff. So yep. that it's it's just that kind of time slot for a mm-hmm. show like that. Um, you know, when it, after a couple seasons, stuff, a lot sure. of a lot of genre shows end up on Friday nights. Which right, is how that's it works. for fucking sure. Yeah. Yeah, love it though. All right. Um, let me um, let me let me jump in. Yeah, here you go. The... I think I think I'm all out. You go for it. Dude. I just you know it's, I just focused on I just focused on one here, but I, I can I can add a few a few other thought points here. But I I saw Nora Durst as this sort of more desperate inverse version of John Locke. So John, the big traumatic oh. event uh, for John Locke kind of awakens him and mm-hmm. puts him on a on a on a path towards 
well, it, I guess it ends at his own death, but like puts him on a path that what he thinks is sort of like religious righteousness, or at least, at least um, the correct, you know, having the correct faith, basically, right? The yes, the big event with Nora Durst, the sudden departure, is terrible for her, and it causes her to lose all faith in literally everything and everyone around her. Um, she's and because of because of how you know because of what happened. In, in The Leftover, she loses her entire family, um, disappears. Uh, she's sort of like this, almost like this town pariah. Like, she's radioactive. Mm -hmm. Everyone, everywhere she goes, people look at her like, oh, that's the woman that lost her entire family. Um, uh, they even, like, even when they're doing the, uh, the memorial um, dedication, they're, as they're planning it, the mayor is talking about, like, that Nora Durst can come up there and say whatever the fuck she wants to because she mm -hmm. lost her entire family. So it's right. it's the big event has the exact inverse effect that it had on John Locke, but the same kind of but they have the same kind of journey towards figuring out exactly what it is that they like need mm -hmm. to figure out for themselves. It's just sort of again just opposite end of the spectrum. They're just moving in different directions, but they are sort of the same person. That's true, and and Nora ends up putting her faith into something else eventually, eventually. Like when she goes towards the the machine and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And while they do, you know, while it's like the complete inverse, in some way, shape, or form, it does end up going back to the whole back to free the will point. versus destiny debate and stuff mm -hmm. like that. That's right. Wow, that's a really interesting way to look at it. And yeah, the whole thing about the big event really doing um, great things for Locke and having the exact inverse on Nora, it makes me wonder if like at some point in time, Damon Lindelof was sitting down and was and made that specific point. You know, like he mm -hmm. wanted um, the inverse, the, the faith character to have the to have the debate with the, um, you know, the, the logic guy, which would be Kevin in this case, and to somehow create that, but in like this completely different way. Yeah. Oh, the, the conversations that Nora has, especially in the second and third seasons, uh, that she has with Kevin are like of someone who clearly doesn't care. Like she, I mean, and I think, I think as you, as for anyone out there who ends up watching the leftovers, who has already seen it, they're both to some degree, Kevin and Nora, they're pretending anyway. It's, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's a facade, like their relationship to, to large degrees before it finally becomes real decades later. Um, but she clearly like in conversations with him about stuff, she doesn't care. At, about yeah. like, anything because her life was ripped away from her oh definitely dude yeah she's the way that um they evolve this character over the course of time i think is great like she moves into shattered to definitely more of like an i don't care to like now i'm going to take something and do something about mm -hmm. this to try to eradicate this pain that i have yep yep the inverse john Locke. um <laughs> I'll, I'll you know what and, and from the leftovers i'm glad you uh, you know i'm glad you i i do want to talk about jack a little bit because I think, I think that if this if Lost were to start now, the Jack character would look much more like Kevin Garvey. Because um, Ke you know Kevin, he's an asshole, but yeah. he's an asshole in a very mm -hmm. different way that Jack's an, that Jack is an asshole. He's an asshole because he can't like acknowledge his shortcomings, whereas Jack was an asshole because he thought he was right all the time, and sometimes he was right, but right. like he he kind of. He kind of lorded that over other people. I, I, I just think that in, in the modern setting, in the way that characters, especially male characters, are written now, Jack Shepard would look much more like Kevin Garvey. Much more like Kevin Garvey. Oh, you got that right, dude. The whole, like, um, 
not necessarily cocky, but like super, but really confident with this. I don't know, like, I guess you're right, just like asshole-ish kind of way about themselves. That's definitely going downhill for sure. And like, there's a, like, we were like, when watching the, the pilot, there's a lot of stuff that probably wouldn't make it into the modern setting. Like the whole like um, Sawyer and Saeed terrorist thing, I think might be <laughs> yes. written and stuff like that. Yes. And like, dude, like, um, there are some lines between Sawyer and Kate during the whole like post polar bear murder mm-hmm. where it's like, Oh yeah, that's definitely not happening today. The whole like, Oh, I've had girls like you line. Mm-hmm. Nope. That shit ain't mm-hmm. going down either. So yeah, when, when you're saying with, um, with Jack being written more like Kevin, I think that by kind of like dumbing down some of the intelligence um, elements and like replacing it with this, um, you know, kind of angry at yourself type thing or a little bit more of like an internal struggle yeah. instead mm-hmm. of like an external display of emotions. I think that's definitely the better way that it is. You know, I mean, number one, that just is a, um, it gives the, uh, the viewer and everything like that. I think the chance to, um, get themselves acquainted with the character more like since the struggles internal i think you know it gives the audience a little bit more time to latch on to that and it's also a little bit more identifiable than like the cocky asshole doctor yeah and i and it's not a it's not a coincidence at all that jack shepherd and and kevin garvey both are in positions of authority uh you know one's a police chief one's one's um orthopedic surgeon couldn't couldn't fucking right. in, in particular works on like people's spines um but like the big difference again sort of like the evolution of that jack character even though kevin garvey's the chief of police it's small town um and mm-hmm. he got the job because his dad had it previously and then his dad went crazy right like yeah, it's it, he's not the same type of authority figure it's it's almost like symbolic for him um and it's mm-hmm. and it makes him a little bit more relatable because he's in a he's in a profession that is everyone knows who cops are even if they're police chief yeah. like we know who cops are i don't know any specific orthopedic specialists that are the best in los angeles <laughs> yeah i don't know any orthopedic people period like at all like i only know my doctor and that's it sorry stay and drink that right exa- exactly it's it's just it makes that character more relatable and when they when they cut some of the edges off of off of uh, off of Jack Shepard, you get Kevin Garvey, and then and if you really want, if you cut some of the more of the edges off of Kevin Garvey, you get Angela Abar. Mm-hmm. To a right. degree, oh yes, you do. Yes, definitely, dude, for sure. So let's uh, let's move then to Watchmen. Um, go ahead with your uh, you know with your character comparison here. Okay, so I have Angela um, up there with Saeed. And good. Very the good. way the reason the reason that I have this, these two are by far and away some of the most um, p- persons of action out of the entire like cast and stuff. And like um, when I say like action, I know that everybody does stuff, but these are like the two that have this like killer instinct and stuff. Mm-hmm. These are like the 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 freaking like battle actiony type um, heroes and stuff like that. And also with um, Saeed's experience in the Republican Guard, I feel that he is like the closest thing to a costume hero that Lost has. Like it. And, yes. And, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's definitely, especially when we see him in the current time frame versus what he used to be, you know, eight, nine years earlier, ten years earlier, whenever it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's almost like he was putting on a costume. 
Definitely, dude. Mm-hmm. And like when Angela, when Angela, um, knowing what is going to happen, but she still decides to do it anyway with Cal and the Seventh Cavalry. Mm-hmm. The only person on Lost that I actually see doing something that like that, like knowing the outcome but trying to challenge it, would be Saeed. Yeah, I would I would agree with you, uh, Saeed, and maybe maybe Kate later season Kate. Yeah. But that's about yeah, definitely it. Definitely later season, Kate. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. That's about but it. Yeah, you're right. Like everybody else takes action in their own way, but these are the ones that like take that real, like that real fucking action for sure. Saeed was, I, I I love this comparison too, especially because Saeed was the one who it wasn't. It was never just. It was never stupid action either. That Saeed when I when Saeed did something, um, he never just dove in head first just to dive in head first, and that's the same with Angela. Like, mm-hmm. she's not an idiot whatsoever. I mean, she's she's a detective. She's, like, a well-respected police officer. She knows what she's doing. Um, they, the, yeah, they both have, they both, like, consider, you know, what whatever the, they weigh the pros and cons, they weigh the evidence or whatever, but then, like, when it comes time to take action, they take action. There is, like, no stopping them. Exactly, dude. Yeah, those two are, those two are straight up fucking studs for sure. My um my next one, um, this one's a little bit simpler. Like I view Hurley and Looking Glass to be somewhat the same. Um, Interesting. And, yeah, and my the reason that I go with this is this whole like paranoia element, and um, they are both affected by a big event. And like actually, Tillman is affected by two big events. If you talk about the squid. And the white knight, and the white and they knight. both kind of yeah. like, uh, yeah, affect them in like different ways and stuff. Our, yeah, Tillman's, his, Tillman's our only character that is there though for the squid in New York. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. He's got he's the closest ratio to it with him being in New Jersey. In or New Jer- yeah, across stuff. the river. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he gets gets that whole like sonic boom thing and stuff like that, which is just a phenomenal. Like I was wondering where that was going. It was amazing. And um, <laughs> it amazing. once it went to the squid monster, I was like, thank God. So I actually put like I went right to Twitter, and that rarely happens. <laughs> so <laughs> so like the um. So this paranoia element um, really does like shape their life and stuff. And like the way that um, Tillman has this relationship with the squid monster and like the, with the hats and everything and the way he lives his life and going to the support groups and stuff, he has this paranoia about something. And Hurley also has this paranoia about something because of the way like him winning the lottery Mm -hmm. and all this bad stuff happening to him. And also, like, out of the characters that are, like, the most consistent comic relief, like, Hurley by far and away is, of like, a, a, one of the most consistent sources of comic relief on Lost. And every every character gets a little bit of humor and stuff, like, mm-hmm. by, but by far and away, he is the one. And, and, even, and even when the other characters do get chance for humor, it's usually with Hurley. Like, a lot of yeah, times it's exactly. with Hurley there, so. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. exactly. And um, when I was trying to find, like, who exactly would be, like, comic relief or whatever, who I find the funniest, and, like, I guess, like, if you were to talk about just a a stock, like, comic relief character, it would be that Red Scare guy. Yeah. But if we're talk if we're talking about a character who's funny with a little bit of substance, like I, I it's Wade Tillman all the way. Like yeah. um, does a really, really good job. And there are some like lines like the romaine lettuce line where I was just like, God, I hope through God the show's not like this the whole time. But um, <laughs> there have been other instances of just either back and forth or 
even the whole thing when they actually go into the machine and the way he interrogates the um, the different um, people and stuff, mm-hmm. I thought that that stuff was kind of funny. So he yeah. was by far and away one of the characters that made me laugh the most. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. It's the it's the way that um, oh, what's the actor? Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. It's, yep. It's the way that Tim Blake Nelson makes that character so dry that. Mm-hmm. You, it's so dry, but at the same time, you know, you know when it's a joke, and you know when he's being serious, despite the fact right. that he makes that character. It's it, he's one of those. I but I love Tim Blake Nelson. He's a great character actor. Um, it's one of those. He's one of those characters. Well, I think I think Watchmen in general. I don't know who they would have cast otherwise in all the roles. Like I, I just I can't yeah. picture anyone else in all the roles. Yeah, that's a good point. I that was such a perfect casting job. Like. I couldn't think of anybody that has like enough personality without having too much personality mm-hmm. the way that Tim Blake Nelson does for that particular character and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. And then my last one, um, my John Locke comparison is going to be Lori, um, Lori Blake. Mm-hmm. And I am going to dabble into this a little bit more, but um, in one of the other questions, but um, just know that it does center on, a relationship with a God or like something larger than us as we know it. And I do feel that hers while different definitely mirrors what Locke goes through on the Island. And I'll dabble into a little bit more in a different answer. I gotcha. I, I, I think I know where you're going with that one. So I won't like, I won't add too much to that. It's just, yeah, sort of, sort of being at the, being at the right hand of someone who is all powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. You got Love that it. right. I'll expand upon it in a little bit. In a little bit. Love that. Um, all right. So for Watchmen here, this is, I this is one that I, I was, you know, I, it's funny because I tried to find one with Hurley, and I'm I'm glad that you got to Wade Tillman. That was a really good one. I didn't really think about that. I upon like reflection of this question, I think Hurley is the most unique character in all of these shows. Oh, very interesting. Do I, I just, explain. I mean. Maybe Sun and Jin, but like it's because like that. Maybe Sun and Jin, but I think that also is like a cultural bar- cultural barrier thing. That like mm-hmm. there isn't just like another Korean couple or and or foreign couple that like pops up. But yeah, Hurley is is very incomparable because he is like a. It's I don't know how to explain it. Like you're right, the closest comparison is Wade Tillman, but even then, he's vastly different. It's a stretch. Hurley. Yeah, yeah, it's a believe me. That was me trying. That was like at lawyer Adam going into the courtroom here. That was me trying to present. No, it's, the case. <laughs> I, I no, I dig the comparison. I like it a lot. I just, I, I really had a hard time because I'm like, fuck. I want to talk about Hurley because he's fucking awesome, um, and like it's just he's incomparable. And here's how, and here's how like beloved Jorge Garcia was. So like Matthew Fox is like a notorious fucking grump and asshole. Um, this yep. is like why he's not. He hasn't been in anything in a long time. Um, I think the last yep. thing he was in was Bone Tomahawk, um, which is now seven years old or six years old. So it's it's been a while, but he's notorious asshole. Like he apparently he loved hanging out with Jorge Garcia on set. Like that even this like grump like had a good time in their scenes and like her, like Jorge Garcia would crack him up in between like in between takes. Um, mm-hmm. Like. So like that's clearly like how beloved Jorge Garcia was and how incomparable Hurley is. Yeah, yeah, I got you, dude. He Shepard or uh, Matthew Fox is like the Cleveland bus driver beater and stuff like that. Like yep. when he was in Cleveland, he got yep. into some stuff. And yeah, it's like when you are um, 
that much of an asshole, but you're like hanging out with Jorge Garcia. Like, yeah, that definitely says something about um, Jorge Garcia. And even, even like around that time, like I remember him always being just like the fun, lovable guy. Maybe he makes a cameo in like a show or Mm. like he's in a commercial or something. And Hurley was just this like really like fun, lovable glue character that also had like a lot of weight to Mm -hmm. him and stuff. And the lottery story is one of the most unique stories on Lost. Like, no one really has anything like that. You know, he doesn't have, like, these complex mommy or daddy issues. He's not running from the law. But he does, in his own way, have his own struggles that are just very unique compared to some of the other characters. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so I, here's, here's a comparison I did make because I, I do want to talk about him a little bit. Uh, but this is my, from Watchmen, this is my Ben Linus comparison. And that's Lady True. Okay. Um, yes. Lady, Tr- Lady True is Ben Linus with significantly more money as she c- claims that she's a trillionaire. Um, but in the same way, like Ben Linus, she is extremely smart. She will play mm-hmm. any side that she has to to get what she wants. She'll be generous. She'll be ruthless. Whatever, whatever it takes to get to that particular goal is what she will do. It doesn't matter if she has to, if she has to, and, and she'll do it for very personal and selfish reasons. Um, or, or in some cases, more benevolent reasons. It doesn't matter. It's whatever she has to do serves her purpose and no one else's purpose. And especially with early Ben Linus, that's what Lady True is. Dude, the manipulation of Lady True and Ben Linus is just like hands down. The way that they're doing everything for themselves, he, that is a way better comparison than Ben Linus to Ozum and Dias. It's almost like the two, after hearing that, Ben and um, Adrian Veidt are on two completely opposite ends of the spectrum now. <laughs> and so like the way that um, she is, yes, like everything is for, you know, basically leaning towards her ability to get Dr. Manhattan's power and stuff. And whether it's manipulating a... Uh, a couple who owns a farm with a baby for their land in a matter of minutes, mm-hmm. or even just this weird twisted relationship of her cloned mother, um, you know, that's Slash, now like sort yeah, of her, her daughter. daughter. Yeah. <laughs> that right there just seems like a Ben Linus type relationship to me that like he would, you know, his daughter died and stuff. And I bet if he could, he would clone her and have some weird, like, you know, kind of clone father daughter relationship oh, with yeah. her and stuff. So like those two and just the, the mastermind element, like if we're talking about the anti- the antagonistic forces, Lady True is the string puller in the same way that that Ben is and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like the the real villains, it's not the seventh cavalry in the end, it's her yeah. as it's not the others who are the real villains. It's actually Ben who's the, the sick, twisted guy. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 I always think about um and it, it's mostly because it's mostly the interrogation scene when we first meet Ben, um, mm-hmm. a.k.a. at that point in time, calling him Henry Gale, um, that he has an answer for everything. Um, and like that, that sort of sets the tone for him. He always has an answer for everything. Lady True has an answer for everything all the time. There is she is so neat and clean about what she's doing that it, it really it's not until it's not until she like till the very last episode where she more or less reveals her plan to Angela and reveals it to everyone else that like we know exactly what she's doing like because mm-hmm. she hasn't she's she is that tidy about what she's doing yeah you know something that's a good point dude i don't remember really trying to figure i didn't really know what her end, her ultimate end game was i mean we knew she was until up to that last shit. little bit of time 
she's right. up to something. Yeah, but they, yeah. they didn't talk about like what the Millennium Clock was, and I, I don't think she, if she's in all the episodes, there are points where she's not in them for very long. So, yeah, um, yeah no, that's a really really good point for sure. But yeah, I, I love that comparison. Um, and again, any chance to talk about Ben Linus is is always a good because like again, one of the I think I think I think the reason why you could draw a lot of comparisons from from any of Lindelof shows, but also like just other shows in general to Ben Linus is because that was such a great character that every fucking mm-hmm. show tried to re- replicate Ben Linus. Yeah. I'm telling you that like when I said that lost, like the finale might've been like the last great network finale. That might be like the last true great network antagonist. It, I, I think you might be right. I, I think you yeah, might be right. Nothing um, comes close. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know what? He's, it, it's funny. Like it's, I've seen some stuff, with him like did you ever watch the practice i know what you're talking about i think i've seen like a couple episodes because he because he ended up on that yeah. yeah he he has a he has a pretty significant arc on on the practice um where he's he's stalking um i can't remember the woman who played kelly williams i think is like the is like the number two lawyer um where he's like stalking kelly williams and it's a pretty significant arc i think he's like i want to say he's like over a couple seasons he's in like 10 or 12 episodes um okay and you can like so this is like ten years before Lost or ten years before he's on Lost, and it's just sort of like, oh yeah, you can see that this guy, you can exactly see what this guy's headed for in all of his movie roles. Like, there's just no doubt, mm-hmm. movie and TV roles. There's no doubt that this guy was born to play Ben Linus. Yeah, he even goes on to voice the Joker in a Batman animated movie. I think it's The Killing Joke. And, like, if we're talking about, like, Mark Hamill being, like, a really great Joker voice, Michael Emerson's Joker is, it rings in your mind, like, almost the same mm. way Mark Hamill does, but just a little more twisted in its own. I way. believe it. I, I totally believe it. Uh, before we go on to the next question here, I'll, I'll, I'll fill in some fringe stuff for you uh, in terms of comparisons. Because okay. I actually do have a Sawyer comparison. Um, nice. Uh, Josh Jackson's character, Peter Bishop, definitely has some strong echoes of Sawyer. Um, and some some trappings of Jack Shepard as well, but I, I, I saw him more as a Sawyer character. He's a, he's a very purposeful outsider. Um, he's a skeptic. He has significant expertise in like very particular areas, the same way that Sawyer does. But like Sawyer, especially at the especially in the first season, well, really the first two seasons of Fringe, um, Peter Bishop is not really willing to sort of share that expertise or really his help unless he gets mm-hmm. something in return. Um, obviously okay. that changes as, as the seasons go on with fringe, but yeah, Peter Bishop sort of is, is he, he very much is sort of exiling himself from, from like what would be normal society in the same way that Sawyer did. Yeah. I remember him not really having much of a relationship with his father. In fact, almost being angry with him, I think oh, yes. in the first season and yeah. stuff. So he was very like, um, it, it wasn't like they were like the fringe crew, like, nope. Hey, we're all together and stuff. It was definitely more a division in um, the first season. Yep, exactly. It, it's very, it, it's very, it even like, it even takes them sort of not really bribing him, but like sort of promising L- Olivia Dunham has to promise him a lot of things to get him to sort of join the team, if you will. Um, and just this in the same way that like, you really got to twist Sawyer's arm. To get him to, mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm thinking of the, there's an episode where someone needs, like, asthma medication. Is it? Yeah. It's uh, Maggie Grace. It's um, Shannon. And, okay. like, you got to twist Sawyer's arm to get them to help someone that's dying. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Or, or could yes. die. I should say could die. So, mm-hmm. and, and that's really, like, what first 
first season Peter Bishop is. It, like he has expertise, he has knowledge, um, but like he just doesn't he doesn't want to share it with you unless it really benefits him. Yeah, dude, I remember Sawyer, like, there was this point in time where he's just getting loaded on, like, Dharma Initiative beer, just, like, not giving a shit about anything and stuff. So, yeah, that's a good, that is definitely a good comparison, like, those outsider-type characters and stuff, and um, by far and away, that would be, I think, like, one of the more comparable comparisons um, between Sawyer and Peter than it is between Sawyer and a lot of Lost or or Watchmen um, characters. Yeah, Sawyer, and and I think Sawyer is a pretty unique character, too. Mm-hmm. But it, it's hard to draw too many. There's like echoes of Sawyer in a lot of characters, but like I think it's it's hard to draw a direct comparison necessarily. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, uh, I'll give you I'll give you a bonus one um, in terms of not main characters. Walter Bishop and his alternate reality version of himself, the Secretary of Defense, Walter Bishop, are Jacob and the Man in Black. Oh they, wow! Okay. They're both very powerful people representing two very different sides of power. Yeah, I gotcha. So, like, Walter, so, like, just from my guess of from what you're saying would be, like, uh, science, Walter is the um, power through science and going into the alternate reality, while Secretary of Defense power is, like, government power and stuff. Like, it's, it's, is that... yeah, exactly. I mean, yes, exactly. Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Defense Walter Bishop is ruthless and mm-hmm. wants to kill walter bishop and our reality okay for, okay you know, i got because, you. basically out of just out of vengeance basically yeah oh yeah i could see him asking for oil and everything to do it too yeah. <laughs> so a little little bonus there a little bonus there uh, okay very nice any uh do you have any other like random comparisons here you want to throw out or anything oh uh, uh, let me see here i think yeah no i think i got them i, I think i got the ones from my list I, for sure i just had like an observation and I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad that you made the the Kate Kate to Meg observation um, or comparison because, like, even though Kate is such an integral part of this show, it really takes them to about season two or three, end of season two to season three, to really start giving Kate some like juicier stuff. And mm-hmm. I know I know Lindelof has said that in interviews that he kind of regrets that they put um, they put Kate on the back burner in the first season and she was kind of like I mean they gave her things to do and she had like her own flashback episode it was like the third episode or fourth mm-hmm. something like that it was, uh, the th- it's the I think it's the third one it's one of the earlier ones yeah. yes I mean so she gets like an early flashback but like she's definitely she's I don't I want to say object but like she's the ping pong ball between Jack and Sawyer um, yes. and it's not till later on that she begins to have significantly more agency yeah, there's um, a scene in particular in one of the early episodes where she's like, you know, cleaning her clothes in the ocean and stuff. And it's like, yeah, this is clearly like oh, the yeah. body shot, you, yep. you know, and like I like I don't see scenes like that in like today's world. Like they're going to find a way to make people look hot or to convey hotness. But a uninterrupted like couple minute scene of her just like you know, taking her clothes off and washing them and stuff. And then ending it with like the, uh, the full shot of her, like, you know, um, with, as, with the least amount of clothes on at yep. this time. Like, yeah, I just don't see that. And you're, you're definitely right about the, um, the ping ponging and stuff like that, because like it goes, it definitely goes even into like season two and stuff. And I, I think like we're maybe even looking into like, like the finale of season three, when she's talking to Jack off of the Island in the air, like outside the, like the airport or whatever, that things really, really start to heat up. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say they did 
Kate and Evangeline Lilly dirty necessarily, but it was definitely a character. I mean, they there's definitely a character that they they didn't pick up. They didn't give enough to. I mean, they gave they gave Son significantly more agency than Kate. Yeah, I got you. Yeah, definitely. No, I understand. And I was actually even reading like on Wikipedia earlier today about how um, there's like these really like contrasting reviews of the character where people like really feel that she was like a lack of agency, and then there's some that like um, think that she pulled it out pretty good in the end. I mean, it's. I'll tell you what. If that's if that's any other actress besides Evangeline Lilly maybe she doesn't pull off the little the little bit that she's given. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotcha. Definitely. Yeah. All right. So which Offspring character would have been the most in, uh, most uh, intriguing addition to Lost? Okay. So here's where I'm going full circle with the Lori Blake thing. Okay. Now, for starters, anytime you could add Gene Smart into anything, you've got my intrigue. Oh, she's absolutely. <laughs> Gene Smart's awesome. Without a doubt. Gene Smart's awesome. Uh, hands down. Amazing. Just it's been so great. I've been a fan for a very, very, very long time. Mm. So that's first and foremost. But the, the thing that I really wanted to um, to get into and what I was saying about um, her relationship with a god before is that she is the only one um, out of basically all of these people to have a tangible experience with a god figure and stuff. Mm-hmm. And not only did she like, you know, she like they were like together. Her and Dr. Manhattan were like an item and stuff like that. There's like a sexual connection, a sexual connection between mm-hmm. them. And I feel that her addition to lost would add another layer of this free will versus, um, versus logic debate or sorry, free will versus destiny debate, mm-hmm. because you have the, the guy who basically ignores it all. And is totally logic driven, which is Jack you have these people like Ben and John and more particularly with John, who is like really affected by the Island has this connection with the Island. He sees Jacob, but there's no real, like there's no real relationship. You know, he's Mm -hmm. only being affected by it. And like Ben having his relationship with the Island, like, I think it's more of like, it's more, that relationship is more Ben than it is the Island as Jacob never spoke to Ben and stuff. So his relationship with the island and the like the supernatural almost like god of this world it's a little bit different and like he is um like he's affected by it in a different way um so bringing lori into this equation i think really it almost solidifies every single element of this free will versus destiny discussion that you could possibly have because she's the only character that is not only like touched God, but has had conversations with him and also like had an actual like physical relationship with him while as everybody else's relationship with the Island or God is more of a spiritual or psychological relationship yeah. and stuff, which, which doesn't like, I will say that with the religious thing and stuff, I'm not going to be one of these people who tears up religion here and stuff, but like as your relationship with the Lord, it's, it is a relationship. I'm not going to take anything away from you, but it is a little bit different because there's nothing really tangible. God itself is not reaching down a hand that like I could go touch, you know, if I just happen to like walk down the street and jump up and touch it, it was coming down to touch another person. While as Dr. Manhattan, like provided he didn't like blow me up or something, I might be able to get a hand on him if he's in the crowd. So, um, the the fact that she has had this personal relationship with him and the and then when she the relationship is no more 
the fact that she still has that connection to him, that is almost more um, mirroring what John and Ben have. But still, John and Ben never had the physical experience. So by adding her to Lost, you're getting a whole other layer of this debate. And if we're talking about like rich, dense and everything, character development and stuff, I mean, they could have really done a lot with that. This would be this would be an awesome addition, actually. I the I think the closest the closest comparison we can draw is Richard Alpert um, mm-hmm. to the you know to um, uh, to look to the Lori to the Lori character is is and even then he's just the go between, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, he does. I mean, obviously he's immortal, but like he's just the go between. Whereas right. like and he and he, even then he still has to ask Jacob for things. Like he still right. has to like go to him to ask for things. Whereas you're right, Laurie's like hands-on experience um, with someone who is, for all intents and purposes, God, just mm-hmm. adds such a different dynamic to the group that is, in their own way, either trying to figure out God or figure out, you know, figure out their figure out their relationship with God or like their lack of relationship with God. That's a very yes. good addition. I love that. Thank you very much, dude. Believe me, that's the highlight of the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) And Chema's done. Uh, He's going to end on a high note. Um, But no, Chema, we had we had very similar thinking because I want I I, want to spin Cal Abar, specifically Cal Abar back onto Lost. Um, I want him before he knows before, you know, after after he gets his head bashed open. um, I want him. I want that, that Cal Abar who doesn't know that he's Dr. Manhattan on the show um it just adds this interesting wrinkle what if we had another god who didn't know he was a god and like all of the other characters are that are going through this sort of um self-discovery and their sort of relationship with god and faith and and science and everything else for that matter this is a very different dynamic as someone might begin to discover that holy shit like maybe maybe this isn't just about faith for me maybe this is about understanding that like i am one of the most powerful human beings possibly on the entire planet possibly the entire universe so the the Mm -hmm. path of self-discovery and acceptance becomes significantly different and then yes let's just say like at some point in time cal abar does discover that he is dr manhattan having been able to like sit and witness all of the all of the goings on on the island does he take the people off with him does he leave them there does he punish people? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's a very different yeah. dynamic that opens up, like having seen some of the terrible behavior of these people or some of the great behavior of these people. Like, what does someone with all the power in the world then do once once he's discovered that and once he's been living alongside these people for so long? All right, dude. Now, this is, real, this is something here. I really like this a lot. And that is, like, once again, would be a really great and much needed perspective on the whole like faith versus free will is and it's something that uh the acceptance path and having this power like that's just something that they really like don't get into in lost and but they do have this like religious like element and debate and everything so that right there is actually really really good stuff and i like how you cap it off at the end with um now that i know i have this power what do I do? Because that in itself is such a really big and important statement and something that is like, you know, it's like the foundation of the Bible almost in certain Mm -hmm. chapters, especially when God decides to take out all his anger on us and stuff. But um, 
Yeah, I really like that. Like, my God, just the the idea of somebody even learning that they are the most all-powerful being is just something that I think is a lot of room for character exploration and, like, splitting him and dividing him between everybody else. Mm-hmm. I I think I came to this... I think I came to this particular answer because... And I, and I know this is... Pro, I know prob- part of the reason for this, what, what I'm going to get into here... Part of the reason is they didn't have Jacob figured out by season one, two-ish, probably even three-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, like, so you have this, you have this godlike figure on the island um, who's you know pulling these candidates in to sort of take over, take over for the you know take over his role on the island and keep um, essentially keep evil or keep the the wickedness of, of the world at bay. And, and wouldn't you have? If you are this character, if you're this figure, and we see him in, like in various in the last season, we see him at various points in time interacting with the with the candidates. But wouldn't you have embedded yourself with the candidates to see them up close? Oh, of course. You know, yeah, and, definitely. And again, I think that's just because they didn't have this part of the story figured out yet. That's why he's not present. Like that's why Mark Pellegrino right. isn't in episode one. But, um, but yeah, like I was, I was thinking about that, um, not that, not that long ago. I was thinking about that. And I'm like, wouldn't you have, like, you want to see, you want to know if these people, people are worth your, you know, taking up your role and taking up like this responsibility. Wouldn't you want to like sit with them and like see them every day? And so like putting someone like Cal Abar into this equation kind of fills that role. Yeah. And now that you mention it, like. With the big reveal, you know, him finding out that he's got all this power, there's all this room to, like, develop relationships and get to know the characters and have the audience get to know the characters in ways that the other characters wouldn't get to know them and stuff. Like, maybe he's sitting around a fire with somebody and there's some long, crazy confession and stuff that no one else knows about but him. And in the end, like, if that person did something bad, maybe they don't get off the island or maybe they are, like, um, are sent to some place where they can atone for whatever the hell they did and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that would then put a lot more weight on the big twist when he finds out that he is the all powerful being because the entire time it's just going to look like this guy having conversations with people and being on the island and relating to them and getting to know them and stuff but in the end it's a guy who's the ultimate decision maker yeah yeah i don't know just thought that would be a good one and and i'm glad that we went I'm, i'm actually not surprised that we went to a similar place that yeah. put on loss someone with like di- either someone with direct experience as a god with a god or someone who is a, for all intents and purposes a god would be a really interesting addition to that show. Yeah, like because out of all the out of all the different ways that they examine the um, the free will versus destiny debate, they never examine either somebody being a god or somebody having a tangible relationship with them. Right. The, again, the closest we get is Richard Alpert and. It's he's one of those characters I wish we could have gotten more with just because yeah. he has such an intriguing backstory. Yeah, exactly. Like Nestor Carbonell really nailed the hell out of that mm-hmm. role and stuff. And it was one of those times where like every time that he was on, I remember like, I remember that that just being where you want to pay attention. Yep. Yep. Dude, his eyes are that dark. Oh yeah. I that, believe it. That's man. like, that blows my mind. Like, I, so what I'm thinking here is that like on other when he shows up like on other movies and TV shows and stuff, they have to mm-hmm. lighten that area around his eyes because his eyes are incredibly dark around around the eyes. Dude, I'm actually thinking now that 
now that I think about it, when he's in the Dark Knight, he's only in like outdoor scenes, like jails and stuff that yeah. have very, very focused light. Like I think he's only in, really in like the one scene with Commissioner Gordon. Maybe like one other scene. He's got one other but scene. In, yeah, but yeah. In, in the jail with Commissioner Gordon, he's under like very, very focused lighting, you know, like he's never um, he's never like outside of like the um, the 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 amount of light space of light yeah. would cover. Yeah, exactly. He would make a great Batman. Just like, <laughs> oh, dude, the, the Mysterioso element of <laughs> yeah, it. Hell yeah, exactly. He'd make a great Batman, um, which he actually did play Deflator Mouse in The Tick. Which is, oh, no or way. I'm sorry, or I'm sorry, Batman, Batman, well, Batman, well, in the tick, the Spanish, the Latino Batman. Oh, okay. and was this the recent one? The, Not the, the recent one? one. I think the the um, the uh, Patrick Warburton one from like the early 2000s. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Like I actually kind of like the uh, the the new one. I like the recent one. It's just I'm not surprised it didn't get a third season though. That's all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Not it's, surprised. It's enjoyable. Not a lot of longevity. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the inverse question of this lost character that would have been most intriguing on any of the Offspring shows. So like you just just pick one. Doesn't really matter. You have to do it for okay. all of them. If you did for all of them, great. But um, who no, would you, just who would you spin from Lost to what show? Okay, I did this one. This one is actually like um, okay. I had Daniel Faraday going Ooh. to Lost, or sorry, going to The Leftovers, The okay. Leftovers. And um, the reason that I had this is because one thing I really wanted more out of The Leftovers was some of the science stuff that people were looking behind The Great yes. Departure. And I, I, the episode I'm totally blanking on, but like these guys show up, and I think it's at Nora's house, and they're talking about energy and everything like that, and how like you know, if the kids were here, maybe that energy like affected them. And that's like, they were looking yeah, for like these energy things. It was, it was, it was, they were like grad student or like, it was a, it was like a study from, um, uh, from like Penn or something that wanted mm-hmm. to, that wanted that like bought the house from her for like 3 million or wanted to buy the house from her for like two or $3 million or something. So they could study That's it. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I feel that if they would have, gone the more sciencey route which they didn't have the characters for it like there wasn't right. like the scientist character and if they had like the more science centric character like like daniel faraday is that we would have gotten a little bit more of that and i as much as i enjoyed like the religious stuff and all that like at times it, it made things seem a little thick and it's mm-hmm. weird that i'm looking to science to like not to unthicken something <laughs> so which but like when it comes to like when it comes to stuff like that like you know there is some real science that you could that you could root that in but you can also have like a lot of fun with it and stuff because it's this supernatural event mm-hmm. so in my mind like i just saw like a lot of like you know scenes with like number crunching and graphs and like charlie mailroom boards of different things and stuff and (laughs) and and maybe like we could have got something from the science stuff that would have given us more weight given us more like um weight behind Nora's big monologue in the end where she talks about what the other side looked like yeah and and one of the things that like really got me about the left one of the things like i wanted was us to see what that looked like. And the, 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 the monologue she does, some of it is just like going through my mind right now. And it's like, is it did, it did its job. You know, she like gave us like everything we needed to know, 
but she only gave us like the like really like the bullet points. Yeah. And like if the, if that monologue was twenty minutes long, uninterrupted of her like describing stuff, I still would have been like okay with it because I just wanted to know what was on the other side of this machine. And if we would have had Faraday and a little bit more of a science-centric character, we would have gotten something. Photos, something. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but like I think we would have gotten more about this other world, and um, that's something that I personally wanted. I, I, I agree with you on all of this um, so hard because there, like I didn't – you know, at the end of – when you get done with – this is why I said The, uh, the Leftovers was, was the most rewarding watch out of all of these shows. Um that like you got to go through a lot of like well I mean just I guess for the viewer there's a lot of faith you got to put into every character and all parts of the story and when you get through it it's like it just feels like you you do get rewarded for that faith um but like you're right like as 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 a big sci-fi nerd I would have loved for more for just a little bit more of a sci-fi explanation not it doesn't have to totally over I don't need to know the exact specifics of what happened but you're right. Like a Faraday character could have at least in some scenes here and there in the in the first season or well, any season doesn't really matter. Could have mm-hmm. been like could have given you some like even if it's just maybes. You know, this is a theory. This is an idea. There could yeah. have been at least some more. You know, like we could have gotten a little bit more like some at least some like scientific terminology that maybe made it seem a little bit more real. Other than yeah, other than like. Well, it could have, you know, like even when we have that meeting with the with the um, the people from Penn, they don't really get that far into like the specifics about it. Into right, like they talk about radiation or something, but it's it's like okay, so that's basically what they're investigating. Like there is more of a particular type of radiation in this area that we want to investigate that could have had something to do with why your entire family disappeared. And then there's the pseudo scientist who comes who shows up in season two. Uh, who wants to do readings at their house in Texas? And when she when she calls when she calls the number that this guy gave her, it's they want to take readings because it could have been this like this like benevolent or this uh, evil demon god, um, mm-hmm. you know, like so like there's pseudoscience there. And then it's not until we get to really the last half of the last half of season three with like Katja Erbers and I forgot who the other woman is who plays the scientist that we do get like a little bit more of an answer about how the machine, a little bit into how the machine works, but like Mm -hmm. needed like one more step beyond that. I'm with you on that all the way. Yeah, yeah, definitely do. I think it would have helped out a lot. And like, at least like in my opinion, because I'm so into this kind of stuff. And it also would like, I don't know, almost like kind of reinforce some of the supernatural stuff and grounded it a little bit, it would reinforce like the, like maybe some reasoning behind it. And the reasoning could be entirely wrong, but it at least gives you something to like talk about and stuff. And who knows, maybe like Faraday shows up as a scientist and Hey, he's got it figured out, but his theory is just like completely fucked up and no one believes it. Or maybe it is widely accepted. And there's all these people who think they know what really happened or something. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of room for, a lot of things if they would have enforced reinforced some of the science yeah. stuff a little bit more. Yep. I, I totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. And you know what? The science stuff didn't take away, like I said about the constant, the science stuff and like the, the, the concepts that we're dealing with still didn't take away from the emotional impact of that episode. No, absolutely not. Not a chance. Uh, like that. That's a good, that's a good addition. And actually it would have been really great. It would, if, if it was Daniel Faraday. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that would, exactly. If yeah. Daniel Faraday showed up in an episode. And that would enjoin your theory about yep. the Lost and the Leftovers being in the same cinematic universe? Yep. Definitely. The the Lindelof CU, um, if you will. <laughs> um, like it. Um, I, I'm, going with, I'm going with John Locke here. And I want to put John okay. Locke in Fringe. This, he could have been a character that, I, I think he could have been an, a really good villain in Fringe. Um, someone who is wholeheartedly convinced that his faith is the right answer. And that's sort of, that's sort of one of the, one of the many lessons that like Fringe kind of gets at that like your, you being so convinced of something, it doesn't necessarily, even if you, even if you seem to be right, doesn't mean that you're actually right. Right. Like Walter Mm -hmm. Bishop's whole, just because you can travel to another dimension, doesn't mean you should. Just because right. you you can do some of these things doesn't mean you should, and I could see John Locke being being this sort of like exact this exact mirror for Walter Bishop, someone who is so and maybe he is even like actually super powered for reasons that we don't know, but like he is so convinced that he is some kind of almost religious figure, almost godlike figure, that that uh, you know someone like Walter Bishop flies directly in the face of what he's trying to do. Um, I just I think that would be a very interesting sort of mirror villain for them to have uh, for them to have uh, tried to figure out in Fringe. Oh, one guy Walter completely driven to the God thing through science, and yep. another guy driven to the God thing through faith. Like yep. that's a really really good contrast for this for the science guy and stuff. And it's also a very very unique one too because you don't see a lot of um you don't see a lot of people driven to the the god level by different things um like science and faith like you just don't really see that is what i is what i'm saying yeah i just i I think an intro and plus i just i i can't believe considering some of the the cameos uh from the lost people on fringe i cannot believe they didn't try to get terry o'quinn for something in an episode because just yeah i'm thinking of all the people that are in it and also some of the characters, some of the other people that were recurring, like uh, Jared Harris has a recurring uh, character on that. And I'm almost like, I'm almost thinking like, I bet they wrote that with with um, Terry O'Quinn in mind. And they couldn't get Terry O'Quinn because he was still finishing off Lost. So they went with Jared Harris, which is not a bad, which is, by the way, not a bad backup. <laughs> right, exactly. And that was actually going to be my one of my questions was if Terry O'Quinn made it onto uh, he did not. onto Fringe. And it's kind of... It's kind of disappointing that he didn't. Yeah, he did not. He, I, it just, it, it, it almost, it almost seems like a crime that he didn't make it on there. But you know, whatever. Right, <laughs> right. All right. So to wrap this part up, uh, this is, and I'm going to clarify this question a little bit here. But which show lives up to the precedent set by Lost? Lost, and I, again, there's no way any of these shows live up to it in terms of popularity. Like that's an impossibility. But in terms of like mm-hmm. the spirit and like sort of what they're going after, the feel of it, which one do you think lives up to that precedent of Lost? Oh, it's definitely the leftovers. I mean, the the shows are almost the episodes are like feel like they're almost constructed the same way a Lost episode was. There's not like flashbacks in every one, but they just really do have the same type of feel to them. And like while Watchmen, there are Lindelofian elements of Watchmen, but like the the core of Watchmen wasn't like, well, I guess part of it was the same thing with the leftovers too. But like, I just think that like Watchmen had more like guidelines and more kind of things to 
follow that you really couldn't deviate from. Whereas when it comes to the leftovers book, I don't think that like the leftovers book is hail hailed the same way that Watchmen is, especially in like the, the graphic novel community. Mm-hmm. So I think that he had a little bit more freedom to make the leftovers more of his own. And I, I like, dude, Watchmen is definitely a Damon Lindelof experience, but I think the leftovers is more Lindelofian in terms of, yeah. in terms of a television show. I, and just like, yeah. I mean, everything, everything about it, I, like you got the acceptance, the interconnectedness of characters, the big event and stuff. You actually see the big event in both Lost and the Leftovers. So I'm that's that's me. It's the Leftovers all the way. 100 percent agree. Um, Fringe is Fringe is the J.J. Abrams show that takes some really that takes some of the best style points and some of the best motifs that Lindelof lays out. And, and incorporates them mm-hmm. in a really good way. Like it's, there's nothing, there is nothing wrong with watching a JJ Abrams joint. Believe me, they're, they're all pretty solid. Um, but it's a JJ Abrams show. Um, Watchmen. Mm-hmm. I like the way you put it. There's like guardrails. There's, there's just, even though Lindelof expanded that universe in a very interesting way, it still owes, you can't deviate that far from that source material before, right. before a, it doesn't make sense. And B you have angry fanboys. Um, threatening to kill you on Twitter. So yeah. one of them and being Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, so like it, it is obviously it's it's got it's just full of Lindelofian touches. But the the answer 100 percent is the leftovers. It's it is the younger half brother of Lost. Um, mm-hmm. it, it Like in Lost, where we're, you know, God is at the at the forefront of Lindelof's mind. Um, it feels like the, di- the the dynamic of humanity and the great unknown is more at play with the leftovers. It's like just the next, mm-hmm. it's the next step. We're questioning God. And now about how all the things we don't really know a lot about, that's like the next step to kind of think about. Um, I'm talking about like, it's, and it's, you know, God obviously is again, God's like a big umbrella term for like what we're talking about, but underneath that umbrella, there's other stuff like in, in the leftovers, you could call it God, but like specifically what's the afterlife? What is dying? Like, and then mm-hmm. probably most important, and especially in the first season at the forefront, is how people deal with grief. And even though, even when you get answers, there's never a satisfying answer for when something has been that traumatic. So, like, Leftovers is just sort of, it is just a different, it's a different step, maybe a sidestep from what Lost was exploring. Um, Leftovers is exploring just similar themes, but in just in a different way. Right, exactly. And like the the way that they sidestep, it's just you could tell that like these are the things that I think Lindelof really wants to explore. And I think that he will continue to explore. Like, I almost feel that like I, I saw this It might have been in Wikipedia or like in an article that I read. But he said, like, I think I have all I have to say about Watchmen. I don't believe that Lindelof will ever not have anything to say about some of the things that are addressed in Lost and the Leftovers. Yes, I I would 100% agree with that. I I really hope I really hope we don't see a, a Watchmen two, a Watchmen season two. Like I I'm being I'm, very serious. I just think it ended perfectly, and that's all I need to mm-hmm. see from that. Anything else would ruin yeah. it. Yeah, I have thought about this. At great lengths, my friend, at great lengths, like lost hours to this. And there's no way that they can do it. Like there really isn't. And when it comes to Watchmen is what we know it, it kind of just has to go. You're basically like 
anything future live action wise and Watchmen might be 20 years from now when they turn the graphic novel into a book or they start to take some of the newer DC comics storylines and turn them into live action, which mm-hmm. happened to include the Watchmen. So right. when it comes to this thing, there's nothing else. And like, dude, I'm telling, I thought about it in so many different ways. If there's people that they could bring back, they just don't have it. it. Like he, he closed the loop, the sequel to Watchmen, anybody who read the graphic novel, but was hungry for more, um, or enjoyed the movie, but wanted a sequel. This is the sequel to Watchmen. Yep. Yep, exactly, exactly. And in, and un- you're right. Anything that happens in the future, it's it's a hard reboot. There's no way you can continue the story. There's just it's impossible. No, and you're like the way that that book is. It's just appreciated in ways that like are not appreciated by other fan bases and stuff. And it's still going strong. The book came out in the fucking 80s and it still has this hold and it's only continuing to get new fans and. It's like this is just going to doing anything else is just it's just going to look bad. It's just not going to feel right. Full, totally, totally, totally agree. All right, Chema, it wouldn't be an episode of The Occasionalist if we didn't wrap up with a little bit of uh, a little bit of sort of toying around with the idea of like what we could what we could do with David Lindelof. Um, so what we're going to do here to wrap up, we're going to talk about some TV shows and movies from the time periods that encom- that encompass the uh, the last like 20 years of popular entertainment which essentially covers the time from lost up until now um and what we're going to do we're going to sort of we're going to put uh we're going to put Damon Lindelof's talents to use in a couple different time periods in some TV shows and movies that we think would benefit from his unique voice um and then we're going to finish off with our own Damon Lindelof project so to start off uh, let's start off with the for the I'm I'm making this a big chunk of time simply because I think it's really post-loss that TV does change uh, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so from 2000 to 2010 is the first era that we're going to talk about. And this encompasses the the, the time period of Lost's height of popularity and a little bit before just because I, it, TV pre-Lost is, other than like stuff like The Sopranos, is all kind of the same. Um, mm-hmm. So from 2000 to 2010, I want you to give me a TV show and a movie that you think would have benefited from Lindelof's talents and any changes that you think might have uh, come about if he was on that project. Okay. So, um, the TV show, I'll go with this one first. I don't remember if you ever heard of this show called drive. Um, it was a Fox show and it came out. This is Nathan Fillion was the star. Oh, uh, Emma vaguely. Stone was actually yes. in this show. And it's like, this show was around for like four or five episodes. This was like nothing to get excited about and everything. Um, so the show is basically, um, it was, this was, Lost trickling down into other shows in this time period, which um, from my conscious viewing experience, the big example that I go to is 24 season six. Like this premiered like uh, this would have been like right around like the lost, like kind of heyday and stuff like that. Like oh seven, like oh eight, like in that period and stuff mm-hmm. like oh uh, six to oh nine is like when 20, 24 would have premiered. Right. Right. So, it was obvious in this 24 season that they were trying to borrow Lost because nobody had any fucking clue what the hell was going on. Okay, like it was just they were trying something that was completely out of their wheelhouse. 
and like there's the other i know that there's a dexter season where they try to do this i just can't remember the specifics but like my gut is telling me dexter tried to do something like this but drive was like them really trying to like borrow from lost and stuff and the show is this um big cross-country race and there's all these different characters that are involved in this race but um there's all these like secret elements that are kind of controlling this race and everything and like something that uh you know kind of steering these characters in different ways and that's how they used to do all these plot twists and stuff and like this show needed Damon Lindelof's help big fucking time, okay? Because they had no idea what the hell they were doing. It's almost like the people who created Drive, which were Tim Minear, who was a writer-producer for Lo- or Angel, Lois, and Clark, two, ex- two episodes of The X-Files, and he's now doing that show 911 that's on Fox. Okay. And this guy, this guy named Ben Queen, who was the screenwriter of Cars 2 and 3. So it looks like these guys maybe just like lost – watch lost it was like hey we could do that and then they ultimately didn't and this show did not last long um as a result i i just like pulled it up seven episodes in 2007 and what a fucking cast though like like legitimately what a cast uh kristen layman of the killing and altered carbon emma stone as you mentioned uh taryn manning melanie linsky Nathan Fillion, Marcia Monroe, um, Kevin Alejandro, uh, Dylan Baker. I mean, it's got a fucking cast. Like, this would be hard to put together now. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And, like, they just really – they tried to – I know what they were trying to do, but they just didn't hit it. And, unfortunately, like, Lost was so popular that, like, a lot of shows kind of suffered the same fate because they weren't getting or weren't doing what Lost was doing. They were just trying to do it. Right. Right. The only, the only show that pulled that off briefly, we already mentioned it was heroes that pulled it off mm-hmm. for a little bit. Very, very little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but they had it, but very, very little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good, cho- good choice to drive. I, I like, it's one of those. I, now that as soon as you mentioned it, like I knew that it existed, but at the same time, it, it's almost like one of those things that falls into the Mandela effect. Like mm-hmm. you could have told me the whole cast. I've been like, no, that didn't happen. That didn't exist. Emma Stone wasn't on a TV right. show with Nathan Fillion. You're wrong. Yeah. 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 Dude, that is one of those ones. Like they had a lot of marketing behind it. Like I, we're talking like it was the first show to ever do a live Twitter event. So they, oh, there was a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of like push, like to get this show to make it something and it just it just completely fizzled out. Like it just mm. didn't have the. Gotcha. Um, all right, I'm I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with a show that we had previously mentioned before too. Mostly, I'll say this: all of the shows that I picked for this little um, thought ex- thought ex- thought exercise, they're basically shows that I like, um, mm-hmm. except for this one only because I've never really I've seen it, but never really I've never really done the whole thing on. It. I've only seen a few episodes, um, so I'm going with okay. Supernatural. Um, it, it's again like a, a contemporary of Lost. It, I, I, again, it just ended last year, which is, still blows my mind. Um, that you had a show that went from 2005 to 2020. That's wild. Um, but I think obviously we're we're talking about stuff that's in the name of the show, Supernatural. So we're already kind of leading into an area that might entice Damon Lindelof anyway. But there are I was I was doing a, a pretty I was doing a couple of uh, read throughs on like Wikipedia and like their and like the Supernatural wiki. Um, how they describe the show. There's clearly, there's, you know, there's like a monster of the week element to it. 
Um, so like in the course of a month, you'd have like three monster of the week episodes, but then you'd have an episode that like builds mythology and is more like character focused. Um, mm-hmm. and like in the first season, it's about the brothers. Um, I can't remember the, their names in the show, but it's Jared Padalecki and, um, oh fuck. <laughs> Who's the other actor in the show? Um, the other good looking dude. The other good, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, they're you know they're brothers and they're looking for their father who was like a essentially like a monster hunter. Uh, he disappears and a lot of that is like about uh, the those like character focused shows are about like how they build the relationship. And I really think that that that's again I think that's where with all the quirky stuff that Lindelof does I think that's where he shines the most is figuring out a way to have all the weird stuff inform the characters and their emotions and their relationships. And I think that that would really make this show, I, I don't know if it'd make it better. It was on for 15 fucking years. Um, but I think that would be a really interesting, his show would be a very interesting version of that show. Yeah, I complete. I do. I definitely understand where you're going with this for sure. How about, uh, how about a movie? Okay. So this one's a pretty simple one. Avatar. Like, Damon Lindelof was much needed on the set of Avatar. Probably. And like, it's a bunch of people in a place that is like, you know, foreign to them. There's stuff in the woods. It's a pretty big cast. And like, it is a visual monolith. It is something that if we are talking in terms of visuals, I will never, ever say a bad thing about Avatar. But if we are talking about the storyline, oh God, it's bad. And mm-hmm. like with Lindelof, with like Lost being on TV at this time and how TV writers do branch out into movies as Lindelof did. Mm-hmm. Jess and I watched the hunt um, a couple days ago and laughed hysterically. So like it does happen. And I think that like if Lindelof would have got on avatar at this time and avatar was went down as a movie that was amazing beyond just having the visuals, like an amazing story he might have turned into like a real, real powerhouse in film, like mm-hmm. a film and television powerhouse, which I, I don't even know if that's, if that's that doesn't if happen. Have anything like that. Yeah, it doesn't. That doesn't happen. Um, gosh, yeah, that would be, yeah, I know it's, I mean, Avatar is Pocahontas with blue people. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> this, there's a whole article written about this and it, it, it makes me laugh every time. There's a whole article written about, how James Cameron was discussing how he wanted Sigourney Weaver's tits to be huge on her avatar. Um, oh, of course. And I'm just like, God damn, you guys are all fucking perverts, aren't you? Like every last one of you, every last one of you old Hollywood people, you're fucking perverts. And it's just like, why is this necessary? And right. you know what? To his credit, Sigourney Weaver's avatar has some big old jugs um, stuff underneath that Stan- that Stanford shirt. Um, and they look pretty lifelike, but it's just like, it's like, why are we focusing on this when you, I don't know, could have someone write the story so it's not like so, it's not so black and white and so like obvious. You're right. Like the visually speaking, dude, there's that, that movie with like a lot of James Cameron movies, it's now 12 years old and still holds up. I mean, easily holds mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, definitely dude. Yeah. You're right about the freaking junk, the, 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 the breast thing. It's like. <laughs> Huge, why do we even go huge, there? Why does this even have to be a topic? Huge unnecessary. And by the way, huge because she's like twelve feet tall. Huge unnecessary blue boobs. Like just it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, perversion in any any time, man. Anytime yeah. you can. Anytime they get the chance to do it. Good choice, though. Good choice. That's definitely something that would have benefited from from a from a, a talented storyteller. 
uh, as would this movie, 2007's I Am Legend. Um, oh, yeah. I, th- I think we've talked about the original cut on this, have we not? We've talked about it a couple of times. Okay. I'm... I can't remember the specifics, so please. Basically, I'll give you. I'll just do the real quick version of this. Basically, um, the the vampires or the zombies, whatever you want to call them, the the one that we see a lot has has uh, self awareness and agency, and the whole thing that like the the thing that sort of sets everything in motion is when uh, Robert Neville kidnaps that you know kidnaps the one to experiment on. That's the that's like the pack leader's girlfriend or mate or whatever. And the whole story mm-hmm. is him trying to get her back. Okay. Oh, Which, interesting. It's just more interesting. Like he, yeah, like the, the original ending is where the you know where they're in his lab trying to break through. He breathes steam on the you know on the plexiglass, and he draws the 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 uh, the woman has like a tattoo on her shoulder. He breathes steam mm-hmm. on it and he draws the outline of the tattoo to signal like we don't want you, we want her back. That's it. And then the, the movie ends with oh, him wow. opening the glass, they take her, and they leave. Okay, 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 I gotcha. Yeah, that definitely sounds a lot more compelling than what the hell is actually going on. There, <laughs> right, <for> exactly. Sure. <laughs> so, again, I, I think I think Lindelof, what he brings to this, and we get, like, shades of this, right? We get shades of the fact that Robert Neville um, is having a mental breakdown. Because he is mm-hmm. alone in, on Manhattan Island by himself for the, what, four years or three years, however long it's supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. trying to find an answer to a problem that he created. Um, he's he's the one he, he's the one who cures cancer and then gets and then basically makes everyone into a zombie vampire, whatever the fuck you want to call him. I, vampire seems more in line since they're like light sensitive, but doesn't really matter. Right. Um, so like there is this aspect of like the fact that Robert Neville is having a total mental breakdown. Um, and that toll of being alone and failing for year, you know, every day, year after year after year is like mounting on him. You know, we see it, you know, he talks to his dog as the only person that he has to talk to. And I know that in a Lindelof story, this, this would be the focus, this person mm-hmm. having a mental breakdown and what it means. And then as the movie progresses, we do have some interesting stuff where like, you know, like the, there's like that scene with the mannequin that gets moved. Um, and Robert Neville is not sure if like, is this real? Is the mannequin that he talks to, he talks to the mannequins. Um, are, are the mannequins that he talks to he basically creates a whole city for him to like walk through and talk to people mm-hmm. and do things that he would normally do and when they begin you know when they begin presumably the creatures begin moving them around is that really happening is it not happening it doesn't matter it creates a lot of confusion and you know it, it enhances that paranoia but also he's he's also right to be paranoid because there are bizarre creatures out there living in the darkness um i think with yeah. the lindelof with Lindelof in charge of writing the script, it becomes a a vastly different movie that is not action oriented, but is much more probably more, probably much more of a, a psychological horror movie than anything else. Yeah, you're right. You would definitely be more in on the mental breakdown element of it and stuff. And, and he would probably do it in like a really cool way where like people from uh, his life would be like, even the the wife or whatever would come back and like talk to him or whatever, be in the same room with him and stuff. And there'd be some crazy ass fucking twist along the way. And they probably wouldn't even reveal the vampire thing till like actually see these things until way into the movie. It wouldn't I, be anything yeah. that we're getting taste of early on. It would be a completely different format. I was disappointed that they revealed them at all, that they were much freakier if you just hear them and like know that they're moving mm-hmm. around in the shadows than if you actually see them. 
Oh, the design of those things like wasn't shit. anything to get excited about. Yeah, just, exactly. Just, weird, just, just like people with elongated heads and weird skin. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. There was no real style to them whatsoever. Nothing to really make those creatures stand out from anything else. Yeah, yeah. All right. So how about how about something um, movie or TV show doesn't matter. Something that would have that like especially was like pop, maybe pop, maybe even popular at the time that on paper would seem like, all right, Lindelof on this show or Lindelof in this movie would be great. But do you think would be a mismatch if he were, if he were to be in, incorporated in that project? Okay. I actually just watched this movie like three weeks ago. And this is the, this is totally something that's right up his alley, but it's just, it wouldn't work out. Inception. Like if we're talking mind fucks, Lindelof loves a mind fuck. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like this dude lost was like, you know, very, very mind fucky. Inception is like literally your mind getting fucked on screen. Okay. Like that's what we're watching. And in the end, Inception is just too much of a Christopher Nolan vision to bring in a powerhouse writer like Wolf. Yeah. Like, and while I could see Damon really, you're probably doing some cool stuff here, but the. I guess the way the story is structured and even like the, the way we see it play out on screen, that is just like entirely Christopher Nolan. And like when these guys are getting further and further in their dreams and then they all have to kind of sync their wake up in accordance. Like, I mean, you're like, I got to say like that, that right there is just, you're not getting your two cents in like that's no. just Nolan being Nolan. So inception I think if we're talking, if you read like you read the, the the first like paragraph summary on Wikipedia, you're probably thinking, okay, this is probably Lindelof. But when you actually read the whole Wikipedia page, I, I think it becomes more apparent that it's a Christopher Nolan movie. He he is he's our modern action auteur. That mm-hmm. like I, I mean, he writes and directs everything. I mean, he's he is in control of every single thing that he does. Um, yeah. It, it's, I, I just, I just think even if he, br- you know, and I'm sure he brings in, well, I know he brings his brother in to um, consult and stuff and like do edits and stuff, but um, amongst other people, but like, I just can't imagine that Christopher Nolan and not out of like disrespect or anything, that he would want someone with such an enormous and unique voice doing right. tam- you know messing around with what he's what with, with what the idea that he's putting forth right exactly like it's just like i don't even really see him asking lindelof for his opinion. never you know like hey did like take a look at this and but when you get to like the level of, of brilliance that christopher nolan is like i it's almost just like putting like five studs on an NBA team. Like there's a chance that they're probably not going to gel. It's, it's something yeah. similar to that. Like the guy is just so Christopher Nolan that I like, I don't even see him really. I just see him go into his brother, maybe a couple other people, some stu- trusted studio executive. And, and that's it. Like his inner circle is probably very small. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, it, it, absolutely. Absolutely. He, <laughs> Nolan Nolan does Nolan basically at this point has like basically has like an eternal blank check to do whatever he wants. Um, so mm-hmm. if he ever wanted to bring a Lindelof, I'm, I'm sure whatever studio could make that happen. But I just don't think I think basically everything that he does at this point is just like I want to do this, so I'm going to do yeah. this. Like Tenet was clearly 
clearly like something that he wanted to do and was an answer to some of the criticism of his past movies. Like that, yeah. that's, oh, dude. that's basically what it was. Yeah, Tennant was like he's developing it for a while and stuff. So I mean, who knows how many more things that he's been developing for ten years that are just like Tennant but on drugs. You know? Yeah, exactly. Dude, weird random thing about Tennant that blows my mind. There are fewer effects shots in Tennant than there are in Dunkirk. Really? Like way fewer. Wow. Most, is... most of the stuff was just, you know, most like a lot of the stuff you think about as being effects was just running film backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me, too. Yeah, you know something like because there's not a lot of like explosions and stuff in that big final scene. Like stuff is happening. There's like a battle right. type scene going on, but you're not getting it's not like it's super. Uh, it's not like it's like a super flashy thing and anything that is flashy, they only have to shoot it once and then, then run it backwards once and then backwards once. Yeah, so exactly. That's, that, that's how those temporal you, pincer movements yeah. work. Yeah. That's um, a very, very good term. there. temporal <laughs> pincer movements very like that a lot. And um, yet now that you, now that you bring it like that and now that you, you've told me that I, I see that all the way. I really yeah. do. It's just, I don't know, just one of those interesting, you'd think that, that that movie would be laden with special effects work. I mean, it is, but just not not nearly as much as you would think. But anyway, let's get back on track here. Um, Chema, I went with, and this is, I went with one that, because I think it's so obvious, it, it's TV show that's so obvious that it's maybe too obvious. It's Battlestar Galactica. There are, this whole huh. show is about religious expo- exploration, but... It comes from a very different angle. It's it's not about like exploring. It's not about like the, how the people are trying to figure out a higher power and how to cope with it. Um, there's a little bit of that there in the in terms of like what the Cylons evolved into. You know, these machines yeah. that now they believe in God, the same God that we do, and they believe that God is telling them to like basically launch this holy war against against humanity. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that there. But really, and especially as you get towards the um, the end of, of the last few seasons, um, it's more that it's more that God is watching, and God knows, and God knows what you're up to. So it's really okay. like it, it's not a direct exploration of God. It's just that this was sort of this is sort of all happening under His eye, basically His or her eye, its eye, whatever you want to call it. And there's like, you know, there's some like very, even some of the religious metaphors they go for are like a little bit, they're very on the nose. And mm-hmm. I don't think Lindelof would make something quite on the on the nose. Well, I mean, other than Christian Shepherd um, might not make something <laughs> quite as on the nose. Like, there's a character that's an angel who literally just like disappears after her mission is complete. Um, there's, there's like the people that are some of the Cylons that are like these like chosen Cylons. There's like seven of them or whatever it is. Or no, no, there's like seven and that's how it gets revealed. Like there's very obvious religious metaphors and like Ron Moore was like a Catholic for a long time. So like it, it makes sense. They're just not, they're not going for subtlety. Basically is what I'm saying on Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, 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 definitely. And with, with sci-fi channel programming, like, like especially from that time period we're not necessarily going for subtlety with anything no, you know no no Ron, subtlety is not ron ron moore the creator of battlestar a bunch of other things used to write on star trek subtlety really isn't like 
and it's fine. It doesn't make it good or bad. Like, just subtlety isn't, like, his thing at all. Yeah. No, I got you. Definitely. And, then, like, when you come to, like, the Sci-Fi Channel, like, viewership and stuff like that, it's it's not, like, the most watched channel. So you you can't really crank up certain intelligences, like, at least back then, anyway. You kind of had to have just straightforward stuff that just happened to be science fiction. I, Which is, I think that's part of the reason why The Expanse um, got dumped by Sci-Fi and, and Amazon picked it up. Because it wasn't, not that it was, not, I, wanna, I don't want to say dumbing down, but it was just, the focus was never on some of the, like, the Battlestar's got plenty of action in it. Like, every episode just about has plenty of action in it. And it's good, too. Like, it's, like, for, especially for the time, like, TV action show, like, it, it, it looked good for the time. Um, that's in the Expanse, but we're talking, like, I don't know, in a 10-episode season, there's, like, maybe two to three episodes that have any action in it. And there's a, not any, but I mean, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of diplomacy happening. Right. There's a lot of that kind of stuff happening. Yeah, you bet, dude. Like, The Expanse, like, the, um, because I did watch the first season. You're not looking at, like, a lot of action-y stuff. It's, it's a lot of, um, kind of foundation building. And it's more about not the action-y stuff, but, like, almost like the behind-the-scenes stuff of that. Yeah. We- bring an event, bring upon like this planetary, you know, kind of uh, battle and stuff yeah. like the conflicts that they're in. Exactly. All right. So let's move to 2011 and 2000 to 2011 to 2015. This is the post lost TV world when literally every network was trying to recreate lost. Um, uh, I mean, I read that list before. This is where a lot of them essentially, especially about 2014, 15, this is when every network was just like, "Oh, we gotta, we gotta do that." Do we have a plane we can crash somewhere? We gotta do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was, I was gonna dump into my selection, but go if, for if it. you had anything else, go. No, for no, it. just go for it. Dude, go for we it. Talk, we we talked about this one um, a little bit in the last episode, and this was a show that um, the event. Okay, this was like right after Lost. Mm-hmm. So like, this um, premiered. Set, let me see here. Set, Give me one quick second here. This was a September 20th, 2010 to May 23rd, 2011. So the show was like literally like a few months uh-huh. after loss had, had ended and stuff. They were really, really trying to capture, um, well, you know, the, 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 everything about loss, like some kind of crazy ass event, which they, which, you know, they named the show after <laughs> The, the mystery part and everything like that. There's like, what is the event, you know? And it's like a, a young guy in a conspiracy and the American government still like more dilemma battles and stuff like that. And it's eventually like leads down the line of domestic domestic terrorism from aliens or whatever it is. And so they had this, like what you're selling you is on a concept and something that could be really cool, but there's just like minimal to no execution of how to do this great concept. And the other thing is that, the show was like right after lost. So like, I think if there's any point of time where people are going to realize like a knockoff, it's always like very, very recently after like the conclusion of something, you know, like you might be able to sneak in 24 getting away with a lost style season and then somehow making up for it later on down the road, which 24 did. But when you're trying to like really like, you know, can, capitalize off momentum i think that people who are were true fans of loss are going to like identify the um 
the you know like what's so shitty about it and stuff yeah. and so like Lindelof is just definitely needed on this show I mean like we're talking about like a complete and utter rebuild up from the from the ground floor and stuff and when you have as large ensemble cast as this did I think he's the guy who knows how to manage it he's the guy the big event guy the big mysterioso guy but honestly like he just got done doing law so there's no way that Right. I, there's just no way that he's going to become like the event guy, you know, and I just I don't think there would have been anything about this that would have intrigued him to do it. But it is a show that definitely needs him, even if it just had a little bit of his voice in it, it probably would have sputtered along for like two or three seasons. Like, right, exactly. If, if yeah. it just had enough of that, it probably would have sputtered along for a couple of seasons. It literally, we're talking, when this show starts, we're talking four months earlier, Lost finishes. And NBC's like, let's crash another, or let's disappear another plane. Um, and then NBC, four years later, let's disappear another another plane. And then NBC uh, last year, let's disappear another plane. What the fuck, NBC? Like, it, like right. man... Manifest, or I guess Manifest was like 2017 when it started or whatever, but like Manifest, legitimate hit for them, but like, like how, are we going to see next year, are they going to crash like a bigger plane or a smaller plane or something? Like what's what's coming next? Yeah, exactly. And then like, it's going to be a boat next. It'll be people oh, who uh, crashed the boat and they went in time. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. That's, that's coming. That's coming. Uh, <laughs> good, good choice though. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought up the event because that's, I can't like, that usually happens in movies where you have like Armageddon and Deep Impact tap opening up within like what, like a year of each other? Not even. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, that's you're right, dude. It's totally, it's a couple of years of each other. It's um the the mall cop phenomenon and stuff like yep. that. Like Paul Blard and Observe and Report. Um, these they do follow each other, and I know that it's um it's something that is still done even to this day. But for some reason, like I. I don't think I see it as much. Not as much. I think I think because studios are finally realizing that like it's that's kind of how like that's well I mean I guess it's because Deep Impact and Armageddon both kind of suck. That's how we talk Sorry. about them. Like these two movies that were, you know, they were what happens is they get sold within months of each other and the yeah. studios are just going to try to beat each other to the punch. That's why we get um more recently White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen. You know, yep. the White House gets attacked. Someone, someone, two people sold similar scripts. They're just trying to beat each other to the punch. I think studios have finally realized that, like, that's how we're going to talk about the movies. Basically, mm-hmm. we're just going to talk about how, like, they, they, two people had the same idea, and one studio was just faster with that idea than the other. Right, and like with the exception of Marvel and DC, like you're really not getting a lot of that stuff. I mean, yeah. the, the Marvel DC might be the only like dueling same style of uh, movies and stuff out there. Right. Right. No, exactly. Uh, good choice. Uh, Chema, I, again, this is a show that I really like. I'm just, uh, it's for me, it's more intriguing about like what Lindelof would have brought to it. And that's uh, The Man in the High Castle. It, oh, yes. It, yes. It does, this needs no improvement, I don't think, per se. But I, I do feel like they, I do feel like some of the mysterious elements would be a little bit more enhanced um, especially the way that he handled Watchmen, the social issues that they bring up, especially in the later seasons where they bring in um, this like black coalition. I can't remember the name of the, like the resistance group that's led by that's led out of San Francisco. Um, that's that's it's all African American, um, but like those those social issues probably would have been brought more to the front 
and maybe mm-hmm. some of the sciencey stuff that the Nazis were working on would have been pushed to the back a little bit more. Um, yeah. So, like, again, I don't, I don't think this show needs really any improvement. I love the show quite a bit. But what really made me think about it is that this show has an extraordinarily Lindelofian ending. Like, extraordinarily Lindelofian. Yes. What is the ending exactly again? So, they... So, essentially, they... Um, they're def- so they defeat the Nazis, basically, um, and yes. like one of the one of the big obvi- obviously that'd be a really terrible ending if they didn't. Um, <laughs> they defeat the Nazis, and actually, in one of the ways they get defeated is one of the former uh, one of the former American um, one of the former American uh, officers is like put in put in place by John Smith. He was like on his on a squad or whatever uh, back during World War Two. He he sort of seeing seeing the the right way he kind of like calls off the dogs uh from bombing san francisco entirely um okay so like that's, that's one right. that's one branch of it so like it's just sort of like doing the right thing and like it wins the day in that case mm-hmm. but then they also they also um they take over the machine that sends people in between realities and yes. when they take over the machine they just turn it on and all of these people from the from the u.s reality the u.s winning world war ii reality or i should say the allies winning uh, world war it, it's us um yeah. <laughs> winning the war they all begin to pour over and it's like this it's got like this very it's very ambiguous but very happy feeling to it mm-hmm. but that's it yes. just people begin crossing over to our reality and everyone like looks very happy to be there yeah, that is a very, very fucking Lindelofian. That's the the, the Lindelofian part for sure. I, yeah. I knew, like, I remember the John Smith thing and stuff, which is the more easier or Ober Grubenhopper or Smith or whatever they call yeah. himself. But uh, um, yeah, uh, like that, I used to I used to know it right off the top of my head. It's it's so long. Just uh, yeah, Obergruppenführer, which basically Ober- just means like lieutenant colonel or something. Yeah, dude, like, um, that part was the more simple element, which is, of course, why I remembered it and stuff. But, yes, this whole crossing over, all that stuff, the, the, feel, the, like, the happiness kind of feeling, it was, like, it reminded me of, like, very similar to, like, the Lost Finale and some of, yeah. like, the, the, the happiness and stuff like that in, like, the church and stuff. I mean, it, even, like, even the way they shoot, the, even the way the people that are coming across are shot, like, it's obviously, like, a tunnel with a giant spotlight at the back of it. And like some mm-hmm. smoke effects or whatever, but like the way the people are coming out of it, it's lit almost the same way that Jack when he opens the doors and like walks out. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, it is definitely. Uh, how about uh, how about a movie? Okay, so there's not a lot that I think needs to get tweaked with this, but I don't remember if you remember Oblivion from 2013. Yep. yep. Okay, so like I think that this would have been good because this would have really given Lindelof an opportunity to go like full on sci-fi and not like the sci-fi in the terms of a- Avatar with creatures and stuff, but like this grand minimalist sci-fi. Yeah. And when I say that, it's like you're looking at like dude, like the, the introduction to Tom Cruise is like him in an empty Yankee Stadium and stuff. So there's like these grand visuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the story itself is like it's actually like rather like simple. It's rather muted and stuff like that in terms of what's going on. So I think that like a story like this, um, we would have gotten like a little bit more of like with Tom Cruise and like kind of like this this character of Tom Cruise and stuff like that, and you know maybe even some more of this world and everything. But the big thing with the the twist of with Tom Cruise like kind of being this like you know like almost like a repeat guy like he's just you know like the, the guy like you know they, like a copy almost yeah that would that i think there could have been a lot of cool stuff that damon lindelof would have done with that little twist i think so too you're 
Yeah, this this is the sci-fi that is. I like I like the idea of minimalist sci-fi, and I would I would add to it that like the idea is more important than all of the 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 window dressing, like the sh- mm-hmm. you know, the ships and the and the setting and everything. The idea behind it's most important. Um, Definitely. Yeah, th- I, you're right. Like I think this would be. I have a feeling that we're going to have a lot of these. We're going to have more of these. It's not so much stuff that I think that like it needs improvement. I just want to see that version of it. And same with Oblivion. Like I like Oblivion. It's a very solid. It's a very solid movie. Um, you know, nothing. It's nothing special, but it's it's solid. Like I, I enjoy yeah. it. Um, but his, I think his version would be very very intriguing to see. Yeah, definitely, dude. And you're right. Like hopefully with this minimalist sci-fi. What it basically means is we're telling real stories in a sci-fi universe. So if like the sci-fi part of it is minimal, we're watching like a real character study, which I think we'll see more of. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, here's one that does need a lot of work: uh, the most recent Fantastic Four. Oh yes. <laughs> um, and it, it, here's why I picked this. Um, I, you know, like it, it's again, it's going to be it's the comic bookiness and the need to um, blow shit up and have like a big battle. That'll be there. I mean, it, it'll it'll be there just because of what it is. However, what never, what they only barely touched on in like the in the original run of those Fantastic Four movies with um, uh, what's his name, Ian Griffith, and um, who else am I missing? Jessica Alba, that crew, Chris Evans, yeah, Michael uh, Chiklis, Michael Chiklis, yeah, that crew. What they they touched on a little bit was sort of like the the fact that like their lives were un like unnaturally changed and altered to to in to such a degree that like it causes them problems and i think that that would be a more interesting focus for a fantastic four movie to have mm-hmm. have them sure by the end we're gonna battle you know dr doom or whomever else fine but a lot of that movie should be about them struggling with like these life-changing powers i mean how pissed off would you be if you got turned entirely to fucking stone like what are you gonna yeah. what are you gonna do with your big stone dick like I, I, I mean, <laughs> that uh, that's like literally the first place my mind went. But like seriously, like you got turned entirely to stone. How is that going to affect your mental health? How is that going to affect your relationships? How about if everything you touched exploded into flames? Um, like mm-hmm. th- that sort of stuff is the, what they what they again they barely dealt with. Who directed those? F. Gary Gray, I think, directed the original ones. Um, so like in the F. Gary Gray movies, like they just barely touch on it. But like then everything's okay because they're superheroes. Um, I, I want to see them like have to deal with the fact that these people are, their lives are irreparably fucked. And then mm-hmm. from that, they have to figure out how to do something with that. Yeah. You notice how like in the fantastic four, like all the, um, superpowers just resulted in all this like celebrity fame and everything yep. and how everything just seemed to be so easy and like, yeah, like, Oh, Hey Ben, like, yeah, you're lonely. But then by the end of it, like you're like a stud and stuff like that. Like this, you, get, you not- get to marry Carrie Washington. Pretty yeah, good that's deal. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty good deal. And look, Chris Evans, like this dude, you know, like who, you're right, turns into fire, could be a major um, a major goddamn c- catastrophe for himself and people around him. Dude, it's awesome. He flies and everything. Let's get him on TV and stuff. And like, oh, there's now the paparazzi and everything. So they really did like take away a lot of um, the character struggle elements that they could have with that. And more like in favor of making a, um, a glitzy, almost like, pop music version of a superhero film. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I just, I, I think that's, again, that's where, like, I know we've talked about it before, that, like, Zack Snyder's um, comic book visions aren't, they're not for everyone. They just simply right. aren't. 
but but like I like that he's exploring like these adult themes about like about people's about Clark Kent struggling with the fact that he's fucking Superman about mm-hmm. about um you know about Bruce Wayne struggling with the fact that like he just well I mean I guess it's like an old story at this point but like he just can't get over the things that made him the way he is and he's right he is mentally fucked like I like that kind of stuff and I would love to see more of that in these comic books where these people are like like again like could you imagine you're like you are changed so thoroughly that like you just turn invisible like when you can't control like right that would be kind of fucking annoying if that kind of stuff happened to you oh yeah of course especially in like big situations and stuff you yeah. know how that impacts your real life and everything instead of just making it like oh she's gonna lose all her clothes and then we get the big like jessica alba partially nude covering herself up on right. the bridge and stuff right yeah. exactly all right how about how about your project that just wouldn't have been a fit uh, for for Lindelof at this time, God, I really like this movie uh, Looper in 2012 oh, with JGL yeah. uh, and Bruce Willis and yep. stuff. This is another one of these things that I feel is just like totally Lindelofian in nature. Like it deals with the time loop and everything, and and then also a earlier and later version of yourself. And one is hunting down the other one. It seems like a very very Lindelofian premise. The and even like some of the additional things, like some of the characters have inherited like special abilities that they have, and it's nothing major, it's mostly just little things, you know, like um levitational stuff or like a version of the force, so to speak. Yeah. But in the end, like number one, it's Ryan Johnson. So this is another like writer, director guy who's written and directed like everything that he's done, which is for Ryan Johnson and the last Jedi and like a last Jedi Star Wars director, he only has a few um credits under his name and unfortunately now he's wrapped up in the knives out franchise which they've now franchised that movie yeah. instead of yeah i'm like I, 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 whatever i, I would i yeah. would like to see him do different things but whatever yeah exactly like this is to me right here we have a version of what's going on with avatar where cameron is spending you know like his golden years working on this two and three movies to this at sequel so like that is same thing with rian johnson like dude like i'm sure that the sequels aren't going to capture the same beauty as knives out did but for some reason he's doing it yeah so like like with looper like i feel if you look at like rian johnson's like film you know careers filmography and stuff he starts off with brick which is nowhere near like looper then it falls Mm. into the brothers loom brothers bloom which is both nowhere near like brick and looper then some disney is like hey this guy can direct sci-fi so then they give him a star wars movie and then he goes over to knives out oh you you forgot his turn in breaking bad too oh he did do breaking bad that's right yes he did episodes of breaking bad yeah so like i feel that like when I when I see a writer director and I, like I look at what he's brought to the table and stuff, like Looper seems to be like just his sci-fi movie, you know, because like, like I know he wrote and directed Star Wars, but he was hired on by Disney to do this. And, so and, like, and I, and I'll argue I'll argue with people that Star Wars it's sci-fi light. It's yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. not sci-fi in the same way that Looper is at all, at all. Right, right. So like I just think that like Looper is um, his that's his sci-fi movie and like i don't really see him wanting anybody to touch it and like now that he's done it he's just going to go on to whatever he'll do a war movie he'll probably have a western he'll probably get all the genres and then Mm -hmm. call it a day yeah yeah i would i would love to see johnson return to tv because his his episodes of breaking bad are fantastic fantastic yeah i'm like kind of surprised that he hasn't latched on to more television shows but 
I, once again, it could just be this guy, like now he's so wrapped up in knives out, like he might not do anything else for five I mean, or six years. I'm going to go ahead and assume they're paying him a lot of money because knives out was very successful. So, Oh yeah. It, dude, it was like a successful who done it in yep. the, in the 2020s, yep. you know, like he's getting paid a uh, lot of money to, to not go back to anywhere else. So, right. They're keeping that guy in yeah. house. I, I got a very obvious one here, so I'll be, I'll be short with this one. Um, even though Lindelof is great at adaptation and great at the mystical stuff, this show is just a little bit too fantastical. There's no way he could... I, I don't think there's any way that he could write a Game of Thrones episode that would fit in. Not even a single episode. No. Game of Thrones really is like... It's for those writers and stuff. Yeah. And he... Like, while I believe that he could watch the show and, you know, nail some of the cadences and everything, I have a feeling that, like, whatever he's going to sit down and write is going to be the most Lindelofian version of Game of Thrones what, in the history of Game of Thrones and yep. stuff like that. And it, it would be one of those episodes that is either the greatest episode of Game of Thrones ever or it's like a bottle episode that they just did because hey we we had HBO had some contractual stuff and this was the only way to resolve it. Yeah, it, it, that that's exactly how I was thinking of it. Like or or even if they basically consulted him consulted him on like a single character is mm-hmm. maybe how you could get him in this. But I, I just it just it seems like it would be a fit, but it's just I I, I don't know. It, it's I think I think it's because Lindelof deals with Lindelof stuff all deals in the real world and this mm-hmm. is game of thrones is decidedly not the real world even though we're right. going people fucking suddenly disappearing a magical island that can move and pulls planes down um you know like a, a god people and giant squid monsters like but all that happened in new york and tulsa all that happened in you know what i mean like it's there's yeah. a real setting for it and there's real people in it yeah exactly like the this fictional world and everything like it's it's like a pre-established fictional world and everything, and I I think that there's almost too much in this fictional world for him. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Absolutely. All right. So the current TV landscape, Chemo. Let's move on to 2016 to the present. Um, obviously, because we can't go any farther beyond today. So again, same question here. Uh, what's what's your TV project that uh, that you think Lindelof would be would be interesting to have on? Okay, it would definitely be Legion on FX. This goes back to the whole mindfuckery thing, yeah. okay? Legion, the first season, is it is a total mindfuck, but it's great, okay? And they, they somehow mindfuck you, but like... I like maybe like do the veritable equivalent or do, do the equivalent of like buying you dinner afterwards. Like it all seems to like kind of make sense after you were just drugged through that. Then when you get into season two and three, this is just when they open up and go like all in the wrong directions. They bank a lot of things on a, like a, a mystery antagonist character that like his name's like Farouk and stuff like that. We, it's, there's not a lot of like stuff going I, I, Dude, it's just such a mess. You know, there's this whole mess with this ensemble cast. There's, it's hard to keep track of because part of it's in his mind, part of it's not. It's season two, which like Aubrey Plaza was like one of the greatest characters in season one. She's like not as good as she was in mm-hmm. season two. And so what they started with was something really, really great. And it just kind of exploded. And since the show, like for being like a, a Marvel, you know, rooted superhero X-Men type show, mm-hmm. 
they just like it just be, it needs Lindelof to kind of keep everything to keep everything organized to keep everything straight. All this chaos and all this mindfuckery. I have a feeling that he would have organized this into a little bit more of a cohesive story. And like you could still have it be mindfucking and in four different characters' minds and God only knows what. But I have a feeling that he would have made this a way better presentation that was just a lot easier to follow. I got you. I still haven't seen this yet, so I'm going to ask a question. Is this okay. one of those shows that would have benefited from kind of slowing down the pace of the mindfuckery? Okay. When, yes. In some way, shape, or form, slowing it down would have benefited each one of the seasons. Okay. A, much, a much better slowdown in seasons two and three would have helped out the plot a little bit. But in season one, I think you get like, you could slow it down like just a little bit, but I think the mind fuckery is just enough in season one. Cause you're also still getting to know the show too. Yeah. And it's only eight episodes in the first season. So like once you get beyond season one, they needed to slow down, redraft, rewrite. There was a lot of stuff that needed to be done. Gotcha. Gotcha. I just, again, just thinking about how, they were on Lost very deliberate with how they mm-hmm. doled out how they doled out mysteries and the answers to the mysteries. They were yeah. they definitely they preferred to slow play it because that's you create more drama when you slow play things as opposed to just throwing it all out there. Yeah, there was a lot of like splatter against the wall, see what works and like I got dude I don't even think I finished it. Like I think I bailed out it like somewhere in season three. I made it through to season three and I'm just like I don't even know if I can do this. I don't know if I have four <laughs> more episodes left. I gotcha. I gotcha. I yeah. It's it's one that I still need to check out, but I, I suppose now I'll be like I'll be sort of watching it with that that kind of eye on things. Whatever yeah, you check it out, you'll eventually come around to it. But like, it's something that like you're not. It's gonna you're only gonna come across it once you feel like you've exhausted everything you else have to watch it. Because that's why I started rewatching it. Gotcha. So I was just like, I have nothing else. Might as well do this. Gotcha. Well, I'm gonna go into something that uh, I, I, I'm good. I'm glad with the heads up. Glad for the heads up. And now I'm going to go into something that I actually got to because I ran out of shit to watch that I I actually ended up liking. And it's it's a show that it legitimately gets better. Each like each season gets better uh, because they figure a lot of things out. But um, it's 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 actually an animated show. It's called Final Space. Have you have you heard of this? OK, I have not. OK, it's uh, it's it's on um, it's on TBS or it's actually I think it's on Adult Swim now. Started on TBS originally. It's on Adult Swim. Um it's uh, it's actually out of Conan O'Brien's production company, um, but animated show, and I'm just there's in this show there's a lot of room for for exploration of the of the unexplained and like where science and the supernatural meet, um, okay. which kind of already seems like it's right up Lindelof's alley anyway. I'm I'm just gonna give you like a whole I'm just give you a quick list of things that like happen or like are included in the show, which. Again, this is a this is an animated show with like with some people that look like animals and animals that look like people and some like and some space traveling. Um, starts off with a man locked in a solitary space space prison for five years, battling mental illness. There's a telekinetic villain trying to cross dimensions. There's pocket time travel and reality manipulation. Um, meanwhile, they're trying to battle Lovecraft Lovecraftian intergalactic space gods battling each other for control of the universe. There's an army of undead possessed versions of the main character. Uh, there's a nebula, literally a nebula, that is behind all things evil in space. And love and friendship are the main weapons that our heroes use to fight the villains. 
Yeah, that totally sounds like everything that Lindelof is on. That's like everything that's in his shows. Yes, dude, this show is fucking crazy. <laughs> like it, it starts off. It starts off rough because they don't really know. It's clear that they don't know what they're gonna do with the main character. Like he's annoying, and mm-hmm. to some degree, I get it. Again, he was in a solitary space space prison for five years, so like he's crazy. Like he's very frenetic. He's crazy, and at the end of his five years is like when we began incorporating new characters uh, because of like this like catastrophe um so like he's a little bit annoying but like as as the show progresses they figure out like okay the main character doesn't have to do all the funny stuff let all the other characters do some funny stuff and like it Mm -hmm. just achieves a much better balance but like even in the first episode they do this they do a very lindelof sort of um storytelling element where like we're we start at the very opening we start at the very end of the last episode of the first season of, okay. of our main character floating in space with nine minutes until he runs out of oxygen and everything around him is completely destroyed. And he's having a conversation with the, um, with the artificial intelligence of his ship. That's also like, in, you know, it's in, implanted in his suit or whatever. Um, but he's having this conversation with this AI and then like reflecting on what brought him to that point. And each episode fills in more blanks as to how we got to the point where he's dying in space. Oh, Wow. That's really interesting. I like the way that they started off, like almost at the end or whatever. That's really cool. It's interesting. Like I, this isn't like I'm not gonna like if if I, I'll I'll tell you what. If you want to watch an animated show, 100% watch Rick and Morty before you watch this. It's fucking hysterical. Okay. It is okay hysterical. Um, but this was sort of like this is one of those watches I got to. I was still in the mood for some animated stuff, and I'm mm-hmm. like, well, we'll check it out. It's it's Conan's production company, so maybe it's interesting. It, it it definitely gets better and a little bit deeper as as literally episode to episode, but certainly as the seasons carry on, it gets better and deeper. But I'm just very curious, given all those things that I threw out, how Lindelof would handle those things. Yeah, I'm sure he would do a fucking amazing job of it. And like to go animated too, that's a whole. I like, I know he did T- Tomorrowland. Is that animated or that is like, not? Okay, like okay, just it might be a lot of CGI then, which is why it's, it's oh super it's CGI. Animated. Yes. Okay, so yeah, for him to go animated with something that he's that he's never done, so that could be a really cool thing too. Yeah, just something different. Yeah, definitely. Uh, how about a movie? Okay, this one is like the only movie from post um, 2015 that I think that he needs to get involved in, and that's Alien Covenant all the yeah. way. Yeah. The, the dude wrote Prometheus. Okay, I don't know why the hell they didn't bring him along to continue the saga, whether it's contractual stuff, they just wanted to go in a different direction. But like this dude works with Ridley Scott to like build a universe, and then the next writer that they bring in to do this, whose name is John Logan, who also did. Uh, the Aviator, Gladiator, Any Given Sunday, Skyfall, and this guy D- Dante Harper, who are the screenwriters on this movie and stuff. And then they take like everything that he's going for, and they just seem to like throw it out the fucking window in favor of the whole like, oh my god, is the the, the evil robot kills the good robot, and no one can tell because they look alike shit. And what really, really got me, I think, what got me the most is um the part in Alien Covenant where. We're really starting to find out where David and Dr. Shaw went, okay? And they get mm-hmm. to the planet that's got all, like, the, the humanoid engineer-type characters and all the, the cool-looking ruins and stuff. And then what the fuck does he do? Releases the virus, kills all of them. Like, yeah. all of this cool potential for mythology just thrown right the fuck out the window. And then what the hell do they decide to do after that? Oh, David is the guy who's been building the xenomorphs, even though... 
I, I don't believe that he'd actually even seen it because the um, in Prometheus, the only alien life form that we get is when the, the, the monster gets his hands on one of the engineers. But Dr. Shaw and David are already gone. So they have really no point of reference for the xenomorph. And then all of a sudden it's just like, yeah, you know, David decided to do it. And uh, yeah, so that's that's where the aliens come from. And um, by the way, it's going to be a show now with Noah Hawley. So I think that he needed to be in this to just to, to finish what he started. I think I think part of I could be wrong, but I think part of the reason why he wasn't involved in Covenant is because his voice was just smashed out of Prometheus. Oh, that, really? That okay. He really doesn't. He really didn't have a, a ton of say in like the things that he worked on were like not included in the final cut of that, and that's part of oh, the reason that. why he didn't want to be in Covenant. Probably is contractual, but also he just didn't feel like it. That's that fucking sucks, dude. I'm telling you, like you, just to to, to displace talent like that, the work's gonna suffer. Like it really does. It, and as much as happens, I, as much as I like time, Prometheus, man. yeah, and dude, as much as I, I like Prometheus, like you know, now knowing that he wasn't really involved, like going back on it, I'm sure there's a couple of things that he probably could have fixed. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, for sure. There's a you know, there's a lot. I I like Prometheus too, but there's a lot of that movie that needs to be fixed. Um, mm-hmm. like a lot of that movie that needs to be fi- a lot of that movie that needs to be fixed that needs to be more I, I mean I don't know like did Ridley Scott forget the first movie that he directed <laughs> in terms of this franchise because I, I mean I, I prefer I prefer the first one to the second one um, to James Cameron's which is fine I mean it's a great it's like fun movie it's got some great li- one liners in it Sigourney Weaver's yeah. awesome in it it's a great movie but like that first one is on a different level of psychological horror that a lot of movies, especially especially those sci-fi movies, have really never been able to achieve since 1979. Dude, completely agree with you. Amazon had the 4K restoration on it. I watched Alien like two, three weeks ago. Oh, nice. Like, it's, it's still amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I will say this, however. Uh, Noah Hawley's Alien is going to take place on Earth. And it's going to be about... It's going to be about Weyland yutani less than the aliens so it's going to be about like what it's like to work day to day for this fucking evil car or evil corporation oh now i'm very excited and i'm also very excited because hulu and the fx contract that means i'll actually get to see this show in real time yeah there you go (laughs) there you go um yeah good good choice though very good choice uh i went with one that again i feel like this is this is right up lindelof's alley because there's so much intentional weirdness but it just feels like it goes unfulfilled it just feels like a spectacle um, and that's the Cloverfield Paradox from 2018. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. There's like there's a lot of weird, quirky stuff. We're talking about violating the laws of physics to, you know, to save the Earth, presumably. Um, to, you know, to, to solve like a power, essentially like a, a resource crisis is what we're trying to avert. And we're on this experimental space station doing experimental stuff with particles. And it just creates all sorts of havoc, including like jumping realities. Um it just it just feels like these things should be bigger and more interesting and somehow they make them very small in this movie i I just i don't i don't understand how they bungled something that i guess it's because they try to play it safe when they should have been taking huge swings with something this with something this different you should have been taking huge swings yeah i gotcha like i i didn't see that that's the movie that came out like after the super bowl yep. or something on netflix right yep yeah i didn't i didn't watch that one i've seen the other two installments of the the cloverfield franchise or whatever and yep. i enjoyed both of those especially uh, cloverfield lane was that's awesome. really good but really like, good so good but like this one i didn't see and like you know 
with when you're taking small stops and you should be taking big swings and everything like that, like that's pretty, that's usually a definitive um, red flag that something's up. So bringing Lindelof in that whole thing would have probably helped out. That's, that's why this movie went from, it, it was like a, like a 40 or $50 million movie, um, which actually I don't think those exist anymore. Um, they're either, sure. they're either $300 million or $1 million. Um, right. So it was like a, it was like a forty or fifty million dollar movie that no one that no one wanted to distribute because like they knew that if they put it in the theaters, not so much that it was bad. It was just like this is it just felt like Chema. This is like one of those movies you see on TNT every weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's exactly what it is. I gotcha. And and being able to watch it after the Super Bowl, having nothing else to do, was probably the right move for Netflix. Just like here's the movie. You got nothing else to do, right? It's like nine o'clock. <laughs> Or six o'clock yeah. on the on the West Coast, so why don't you just watch this instead? Yeah, I got to tell you, like that's that is probably the jump that that movie gave it, just to get people to watch it, and it probably was in one ear and out the other one for a lot of moviegoers. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. And I and if had they released that in theaters, oh boy, um, that would have been that would have been a slaughter. No one would have seen this movie. Yeah, <laughs> right. Of course. Um, so how about something that you, from this time period, that would just be a bad match for Lindelof? Okay. I went with something that I know that he's a fan of, and, like, he's a big fan of the Dark Tower, I guess. Mm. And, like, why I feel that it is a mismatch, there's just way too fucking much. This franchise has been kicked around for God knows how long. It seems like they're this Dark Tower franchise is like it's almost like a, they they somehow managed to do things with the stand over and over and over again, but the Dark Tower is like one that they've never really successfully been able to do something with. And I'm sure, yeah, I know that the movie made a lot of money with like Idris Elba and stuff, but it's like you're not hearing anything about them continuing on the story. So for as much as he likes this, and he's even personally like said like yeah, I don't want to mess this up or whatever. I think you're looking at one of these, one of these um, intellectual properties that may be, it may be big in its own way, and there may be a, there may be half the fucking country might have read all these books for all I know, but it's just one of these IPs that they can never really seem to get off the ground, and like I just like I don't even really know if he's the type of guy that would be able to do it, you know, like would a Damon Lindelof production of The Dark Tower really yeah. get more of an audience you know like i i don't know that it would. it would it would intrigue me i mean i didn't see the idris elba one but i'd watch the damon lindelof one but that's that's just me yeah i don't know if there's enough people that like like me out there to give that um franchise the juice it needs to run for as long as it needs to run i i i agree i agree with you on so much here especially that it's i, th- I think it's one of those things that's just it's unadaptable um Unless unless you had some guarantee that you could get like five to six seasons of a TV show out of it, it's just mm-hmm. which no no network's going to sign for that at all. No, um, not a um, chance. There's just no way you could adapt this. Um, doesn't it cover part? How many how many standalone books and how many parts of books does it cover? Like it's it's a lot. It's, yeah, I think that there are three like standalone books, but there's all these like little interjections and other like and, and works characters appear in like all sorts of all sorts of other Stephen King works. Um, yeah, Pennywise appears in the Dark Tower yep. and stuff like that. So I mean, it's like they all like cross over here, which would be cool, and which something that show Castle Rock on Hulu should have fucking did more of. But 
it's just I don't know. Like if it becomes one of these things where like all the characters, then you're really just going to the movies to watch a bunch of cameos or glorified cameos, and. I, I just don't get it. Like, I, I, this is something that is might be one of these things that is really unadaptable. And this interest Elba installment might have been the thing that made people realize it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I agree with you there. And Chema, I'm going to go. This is nothing specific. It's just the way that these happen now. The way that comic book movies happen now, I don't think are a fit for Damon Lindelof. Just yeah. the way they're presented to us, just they don't scream. Even even Zack Snyder's offerings, they just don't seem like he would be a fit to work on any of them. Yeah, man. Like they're Marvel, definitely no. Yeah. It's too formulaic, and like even if he were to be hired on to write a draft, it would probably be the greatest Marvel movie ever made. But it's not going to get made because it's outside of their formula. And even if they were to rework it into their formula they would be sacrificing a lot of stuff, whether it be story or character depth yeah. or whatever the hell it is. And like DC might be a little bit more like in his wheelhouse, but I gotta say, like, I think that DC is going to be doing like almost like formulaic Marvel movies, but a little bit different. So even if he goes to do it, I just don't think it's going to happen, you know? And like, yeah. I also think that the, the one project that he would have given a shit about to do something, he's already done. Yep. Yep. I, I, a hundred percent agree. I, I Watchmen is, is his comic book passion project. So like, why would mm-hmm. he want to, why would he want to attach himself to something else? Um, especially, right. especially we talked about it before the way that, that Marvel, there's nothing about Marvel movies, but like they, there is a template that you have to fill in. Um, and I just yeah. can't imagine that Lindelof would be like, oh, okay, let's do that. Right, right. And like the Marvel formula, dude, like when you see like the upcoming slate of movies they have, I mean, there's characters, they're doing stuff that I've never heard of. We're getting that way with DC. So like, you know, in a couple of years, like what is, what is Lindelof going to do? And I mean, I was just about to say the blue beetle, but they're already doing something like that. So like, are, are they already making that a project with um, the kid from Cobra Kai, uh, Miguel from Cobra Kai? Yeah. So um, like, what, what are they going to throw at him that he's going to want to do? You know, like I, Justice League Dark might be the closest thing, but I, I don't even think that that's going to get to him. No, no, not at all. I think... I think the closest, I like if you were to entice him onto something, maybe something like the boys, maybe. Okay. But even yeah. then, I think that's sort of simply because there's not simply because it's simply because the exploration is more about po- power dynamics, um, the way that celebrity works, that kind of stuff. I just don't think that, even though he's like a great storyteller, I just don't think that's an exact match that he would necessarily would want to that he would want to take on. Yeah, like that show in two seasons is already one of those shows where like that's its writer staff. And like, I don't think yep. that you need to really fuck with that harmony. And I mean, that's bringing like Tarantino, Lindelof, any of the great writers would only kind of throw a wrench in the, yep. the like synergy that's coming out of that writer's room. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's get, let's wrap this up. Chema with our Lindelof projects. Pretty straightforward. You're a studio head. You're commissioning a new project. You want Lindelof on it. What is it? Okay, so this one, I don't know if you're familiar with this. There's this graphic novel that's come out in the last like little bit of the time, and it's still running. It's called We Only Find Them When We Are When They're Dead. Hmm. 
when they are dead. We only find them when they are dead. And it is written by Al Ewing and Simone De Mayo, D-I space capital M-E-O. And this, okay, I got to tell you, like I've only read one of the books and they like they have like the graphic novel thing like that I bought on Amazon and stuff. I haven't read any of the individual issues. But this story, it's really cool. It's like, it centers around these like space, I guess, um, harvesters would be like the, the, the term that I would use. Mm-hmm. And these space harvesters, they fly around and they harvest certain parts of the body from these dead celestial giants that are just randomly floating around the galaxy. Interesting. So like, yeah, so like you're, um, so the, the comic starts off like the people are in the, in the ship and everything. And then you look outside and it's basically like a giant dead that's just floating there. Okay. And then these guys, they, you, and other harvesters too. And there's all this conflict between the other like groups of harvesters. They attach themselves to the body and they start to commodify the body and everything because like, you know, the, the blood will power like a car for 50 years or whatever it is, you know, all these celestial body parts or whatever have a lot of great uses back on earth and everything. So they harvest them and then sell them. So the story becomes about the captain of this one ship who is just like, okay, like I want to find a living God now. And they set off at the end of the graphic novel to try to find a living God. And this to me is something that um, it's like, this is just like, like wrap this up in a bow and fucking give it to them. You know, like it's sci-fi. There's this definitely this relationship with, with God element, um, element of the story that mm-hmm. they explore, but it's not like, a, it's like, it doesn't start off as like a, you know, me praying or worshiping. It's these gods are being commodified by humans to be sold back on earth. And then it transforms into this obsession by this captain to then go out and find a living one. So um, it's still very, very early on in its infancy. And like the whole like jumping off point to go find the the living God is like the the end of the, the first graphic novel. So as this story continues, this is going to explore a lot of different themes and concepts and ideas that Lindelof is familiar with. So this would be something that not now, but in time, and like we're talking maybe even 10 years down the road, that this might work its way to him. Like, I, And if he does it, great. If not, no big deal. But this is something that I feel once we get a little bit more foundation, that this could go to him and this could be something you could do. That that does sound really awesome, actually. Like, the how he enjoys exploring the the search and meeting for God and there's a literal search and meeting for God in this case. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's actually like, it, I don't, it's so on the nose that it's like perfect that like, right. we're literally going to go find, a, I mean, it's a God, but it's God. Let's go find mm-hmm. him and let's see what, and let's see how our obsession with that fucks with everyone. That's awesome. Yeah. You should see what these things look like too. I mean, it's not just, like a like a like a man it's not like my naked body floating through space like i mean these guys have like these cool like uniforms and stuff and they're massive so there's a whole other mythology going on in this story that we haven't even gotten to yet and whenever we do wherever these bodies come from 
I'm, I'm just very excited for it. We, we haven't gotten there yet, at least like for me, but um, whenever we do, I'm going to be really excited about it. Yeah, very nice. That's, they sound like the... Um... They sound like the space gods in Final Space, actually. Uh, like they're they're like they're like these. I mean, like imagine like these like giant demons, basically. That's like what they look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you. Kind of yeah, intriguing. Definitely. Anyway, yeah, like yeah, that. Sure. Though. That's a really good choice. Um, Chema, I'm going. I, I'm going old school here, and this is something that has never quite been done correctly. I want to see. I want. I want Lindelof to tackle. <clears throat> excuse me. I want Lindelof to tackle a Flash Gordon series. Um. The last iteration okay. we have of Flash Gordon was like from 2007. It was like a Canadian show on. I'm gonna go ahead and assume sci-fi because um, it's a Canadian <laughs> show with a bunch of people that you've like probably never heard of, but like have extensive like have extensive IMDb credits. Um, but I'm, I'm sure you've never like heard of any of these people. Um, but there's there's a lot of room to explore some stuff here. Um, like in particular, like my mind drifts to. Um, my mind drifts like immediately to uh, the the main the main villain in the car- in the uh, comic in the old school comic strip, uh, Ming the Merciless. Uh, mm-hmm. He's this horrid ruler who subjugates the citizens of his, citizens of his planet. He's a terrible despot. Like he's basically a walking civil rights nightmare. So you could see how you could shift this focus to in the way that he shifted the focus of Watchmen to um, race relations and those kind of and uh, you know African American civil rights reparations. Mm-hmm. And like how those interactions work, you could see how you could easily shift on a bigger scale to um, to how civil rights, how how politicians and governments treat their citizens. Like you could almost you could easily see how that would shift. Um, mm-hmm. Additionally, there's like there's room here for um, another like to address something else. Um, so Ming the Merciless is emblematic of this time period in media, uh, especially entertainment media. Um, back that like basically covered like the 1890s through uh, through easily through like the 1950s uh, called the yellow peril where okay. people from various nations in Asia were depicted as like murderous creatures um, okay they're they're just they're evil people they're scheming the way they're drawn in in, in cartoons and comics the way that we the way that we portray them on film and uh, and TV it's just it's very, it's very unflattering, extraordinarily racist. Um, it's again, it's just not the way that you would portray Asian people now, um, obviously, or nor should you ever portray Asian people this way. But right. there's an opportunity, and again, a lot like Watchmen, to attack like these anti anti Asian racial issues head on, which especially right now, <laughs> like amazing that this is resurfacing right now, would be very very poignant and timely. Mm-hmm. that's oh exactly right that is for fucking sure yeah exactly and like if i'm not mistaken i think that taika watiti is going to um kind of helm a new like flash I, gordon project and yeah everything like that yeah i've, I've heard that too Which, i don't know if that takes the form of movies or tv or whatever i kind of this feels like one of those things that would be best on tv since there's like so much mythology there's so much to mm-hmm. it I, I i think it'd be better on tv but obviously I also at the same time trust Tika Waititi to do basically anything. So, right, but like where I, you're totally right. Um, where I think Tika and Lindelof are going to differ is like the, the commentary. Like I'm sure they will have the same like message as far as like some of the the social um, like the civil rights issues and stuff like that. But I think with Lindelof, we might get a little bit more in depth 
kind of journey and everything and a more like in-depth story than Tycho might take on the on the subject but but um like I'm glad you brought this up because this is Flash Gordon to me was just like it's always kind of one of these things that like it's like iconic of pop culture in its own way but it's like so forgotten like at the same time you know like I think that you know people may call somebody flash gordon without actually knowing what the hell that comes from yeah you know and yeah and like there's probably there's a bunch of high school kids right now that are calling their wide receiver you know J- justin gordon flash gordon yep. but they have no fucking clue what the hell it comes i from. mean it's it's almost so, 90 that reference is almost 90 years old now <laughs> like right right it stretches back so far <laughs> yeah that's so yeah but like like they you know they they know the they know the words but they they don't know like what it comes from and stuff and like i um something like this if done a really cool way where you shift the focus to more of like civil rights and everything you know could have a very very watchman like impact like will we get a federal holiday out of it probably not but that doesn't mean that people's eyes won't be more open to this kind of stuff and i think and i think um just something else that, like, since you're bringing up uh, Take Away TD, another thing that will differ because they work in they because their stories work in very different ways. Lindelof's would be more set in reality than what a mm-hmm. Take Away TD series would look like. Like, I, I like I'm envision- I wrote down some notes here. Like, I'm envisioning this more like we're not going to be doing interplanetary travel. Like, it might be the future or even a different planet, but like it's going to be shrunk down. So Ming the Merciless isn't like some general despotic general of an entire planet. He's like the Senator in, in a, in a government. He's a corrupt mayor, something like that. Yeah. Flash Gordon isn't an international or, you know, I guess an interplanetary superhero. He's like a cop, a cop turned vigilante, something along those lines where like it shrinks it down. So like the country or the planet Mongo um, is actually like a city or a country or something mm-hmm. um, versus right, right. what Tika Waititi might do. I, Again, don't know this for sure, but just thinking about how these two would differ, Tico T would probably be more faithful to what the original series was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You will be going to different planets, be going to different worlds. It'll yeah. be funnier, you know, like it'll have um, that same kind of Marvel banter that I was complaining about a couple weeks ago. <laughs> it'll have that, but it'll be good. And I'll like it because I think Tico with is the man. So, like, that is that's that's kind of what I'm seeing out of yeah. that show too. Is it more cartoony, but like in a good way? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, Chubba, we are at the end here. Do you have any final thoughts on our expansive deep dive into Damon Lindelof? Other than, oops, yeah, sorry. Other than, I think I know more about this guy now than I ever did, <laughs> and um, like. For as long as we've been we've been talking about doing this episode for a while now, and like I think it turned out really really well and stuff. Like I, I the longer format and everything like that I think works good covering all of the uh, the different projects and stuff. Like th- this was something that I think we needed to do, and I had a, a lot of fun with it. And now I'm going to lose a lot of my life watching Lost all over again and stuff. Yep. So <laughs> it's yeah. I mean this was this was a great time for sure. Yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. I loved I loved digging into this kind of stuff. Um, I, I, like, I guess I guess it's not something that I normally do with people. Like, even even like people that I know that like Lost or like The Leftovers or Watchmen or whatever. I've never like sat with them and went like, you know who Angela Abar reminds me of, and then like did a <laughs> breakdown 
of all the various characters and how like clearly this has been this is Jack Shepard evolving into Kevin Garvey evolving into Angela Abar like mm-hmm. like I don't have the chance to do that and like to sit down and have a chance to do that and like really kind of break that down is a lot of fun yeah dude it's cool to go back like over lost and to be thinking about that and that time period you know just to relive some of the days of my early 20s and stuff like that or mid 20s and stuff like that all over again like yeah that was just such a cool time period for television and stuff and while i agree and i I, like i with a lot of like the general um like the zeitgeist opinion that like television has gotten like just it's on a whole other level and stuff but like it's cool to kind of see like where some of this golden age of television like some of the the seeds that um they planted that grew into what we have today yep yep absolutely you want to you want a little trivia fact about loss what's that so you know who you know who the voice is previously on Lost. You know that guy. The voice, okay, the voice. Yes, I yeah. know, I know of it. I don't know who it is. It's it's one of the producers. Um, I, I can't remember his name right off the top of my head. Um, you could you can look this up if you want, but he he got fired before the pilot even aired, um, because he unauthorized um, went ahead and gave them the direction to go ahead and buy the plane to cut up and like separate. So like. ABC had already paid however many millions of dollars for this plane, and mm-hmm. he just basically okayed it uh, without getting like the final before basically the show was even ordered. Um, oh wow! He just like went ahead and I can't God I can't remember his name, but he went ahead and was just like, yeah, go ahead, we're gonna be shooting in Hawaii in, in you know however many months. Um, so like yeah, they they did that and like I forgot who 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 was above him at ABC was like, yeah, we didn't okay any of this, blah blah blah, whatever. He gets fired. But he gets the last laugh because he's in every single episode of Lost. Yeah, that's really fucking awesome. Like, imagine like, like just screwing up and yet somehow still you end up in every single episode of the show in some way. Yep. And like, I got, I, it wouldn't be surprised if stuff like that happens all the time where somebody gets really like itchy trigger fingers, starts making a purchase and stuff, you know? So. Yeah. All right, Chema, that's it, man. We did it. You want to lead us out of here? Yes, I definitely will, as long as my cat will give me 30 seconds here without meowing. It's okay, buddy. I'll be right there. (laughs) All right. Everybody, thank you very much for turning into the great Damon Lindelof deep dive, which um, I don't know what we're actually going to call it, but that is what we did here today. I think we'll just stick with that. Stick with the deep dive? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that sounds good. It keeps it it in um, consistent with, like, the John Carpenter deep dive and all that other stuff, too. You bet. So... The Damon Lindelof Deep Dive, this is going to be available and the Occasionalist is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and find us on all the social medias, stream us, everything. Um, So yeah, wow, I'm just like realized how out of it I am. But everybody, thank you very much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Adam Chabalewski and Matthew Pagel, we thank you.